Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Don't Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Yay! Up, you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, but I am nothing without the two people who are with me today. Those people are Neil Kulkarne. Hello, Al. And Taylor Parks. Hello, there. Hello, my dears. As always, anything popping interesting happening in your little lives? Absolutely not. (laughs) It's this bloody weather, Al. I'm sorry. You know, we had that day the other day that was quite nice. And yes. you kind of, it was the first day it felt like in six months where I'd opened the curtains and not thought, oh, fucking hell. But um, yeah. it was a false dawn. I, I remember the other side of being a human being, you know, the things of having hope, <laughs> a vague sense of happiness. And that's all gone again. It's pissing it down again. So back in the doldrums, oh, really. Fuck this country. <laughs> so before we get stuck into this week's episode of Top of the Pops, we need to drop a massive thank you to the people who put their hands in the pockets last month and pledged to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash chartmusic. At the moment, I'm uh, basically working out how to get the fucking money out. Uh, but when I do, it'll be new microphones and money for crisps and toughies all round for us, for us poor starving writers here. So let me just thank a fraction of the people who have stepped up and delivered for chart music. Those people include James Beard, Mark Wood, Sam Hopper, Harry Stevens, Stephen Jackson, Richard Berre, Keith Miller. Oh, they all stepped up to the pay window, they all slapped some dollar on the counter, and they all said, yes, chart music. We know how much fire and skill goes into making your podcast, and we want to soothe you with our money. Beautiful people, aren't they? They are, and and in, at, at this time of year, they should be aware that this is the PayPal donation, that Patreon donation, rather, that I think Jesus would have made in his day. Yeah. Definitely. And, and they're forever. Jesus would have been well up for chart music, wouldn't he? <laughs> he would have, he would have. And these people are now fundamentally blessed by the pop gods. Let's name some more, because Martin Pickles is down with us. Andrew Fryer is down with us. Stephen Jackson is down with us. Lee Kyle is down with us. Paul O'Dwyer is down with us. Annette Macklin is down with us. Joseph Goss is down with us. Making funky podcasts is a must. We're number one. <laughs> well, you know, we're not bad. Really, the only difference between us and Jesus was that he didn't have to give the Sermon on the Mount with a sort of chewed edge paper cup in front of him uh, with <laughs> two pence pieces in it. Because carpentry was a, it was a good career in those days. Oh, yeah. But we love those people who give money to us. And 
is what we're going to do for him while we still sort out some new bonus tiers. So listen to this, chaps. The episode after next of Chart Music, let the pop-crazed youngsters decide. Oh, yes. What we're going to do is that all Patreon members will be invited to do a poll to pick from four different episodes of the Pops. All they'll be given is the year and the presenter. And that poll will go live. Well, it's probably gone live now as you're listening to this. And whoever gets the most votes, whichever episode gets the most votes, that's the one we're going to do in our definitive deep style and fashion. I like this sexy new chart music podcast interactivity. So don't forget, patreon.com slash chart music, because tips in our G-string make our living. (laughs) So this episode takes us way, way back to October the 6th. 1977 and it seems that this is the time in the pop world where everything appears to be up for grabs doesn't it chaps you know this is a time when an episode of top of the pops was a proper lucky bag of randomness this episode is a a real grab bag it goes all over the place um the only sort of episode that it reminds me of in a sense is not musically but it reminds me of that 1970 episode that i think me and taylor did in that it kind of just veers all over the shop um, mm. all kinds of different types of music a really really odd episode not really reminiscent for me of the Top of the Pops episodes that I remember I, fi- I think I was in the room when this episode probably happened but yeah. you know 1977 um, I had just turned 5 so so I was dimly aware of things really but um, mm. yet all over the shop and yet in a weird way it does provide quite a convincing picture of what is truly going on in pop at the time yeah I mean we've already smashed the myth that you know, late 1977, it's all about punk, clearly in this episode. No spoilers, but, you know, it isn't, is it? Yeah, also, it seems to have been sequenced with that in mind, in that the zigzagging is so extreme. It's like this episode is trying to run away from a crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's like they've lined up the records that are the most different uh right next to each other. It's good. It does stop it from getting boring, yeah, yeah. even when some of these records are a bit boring. Mm. Yeah, we're going to get some cat shit, aren't we? But we're going to find a jewel or two amongst that cat mm-hmm. shit. Oh, yeah. Radio One So what was in the news this week? Well... A student in Stirling is fined £100 for trying to grow cannabis from budgie seed. The Labour Party conference is finishing up in Brighton. Richard Nixon gives his first speech since his resignation at a Republican Party fundraiser. Hundreds of millions of fags containing tobacco substitutes are incinerated after poor sales. It's like Victoria Wine own brand fags. You remember those? No. <laughs> Victoria Wine used to make their own brand of fags. Um, And I never smoked them. All I know is that a former editor once told me that he tried to skin up with one, and when he opened it, a load of wood shavings fell out. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But the big news this week is that Roger Daltrey has entered a pinball tournament in America and got absolutely battered. (laughs) And they even let him look and listen while he was playing as well. Poor show, Roger. I'm glad. I hate Roger Daltrey. Oh, I hope people went up behind him and went, watch your backs. (laughs) So the ball would go right down the middle. (laughs) The cover of the NME this week, the Sex Pistols. 
the cover of this week's TV Times, Robert Redford and the Muppets. The number one LP this week is 20 Golden Greats by Diana Ross and the Supremes, Oxygen by John Michel Jarre's number two. And over in America, the number one single is the Star Wars theme by Miko. And the number one LP is Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. So, me boys, what were we doing in October of 1977? I was, I think I was first apprehending my um, my freakishness in a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd just recently stopped being tested for being deaf because people thought, my parents thought I was deaf because I wouldn't really speak to many mm. people. Um, and it had been established that I wasn't deaf. But I had, I had it was the first year, actually. I had just to, ignorant. Yeah, just pig ignorant. Um, but it was the first year that I had to, <laughs> it was the first year where I had to get a school uniform. And I remember getting met. Oh, I've- Five. I know it's kind of ridiculous. For fuck's sake, um, man, your life. <laughs> but I was getting measured up. I remember in a shop um, in Cov called Ruby Jacko. I don't know why it's called that. But I was <laughs> I was getting measured up for a, for a cap. It was like a proper old school uniform with a cap, oh, and no. um, got measured up. And my head, my noggin, was so freakishly large that they had to send out of town. They had to send out to Birmingham to get my cap. Um, oh man, Birmingham, uh, land of the massive heads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was just apprehending I was a little bit odd, I guess. But um, don't really remember much. I, I know I should, but honestly, before the age of about six, my whole my memories are just arms crossing windows, rays of light, little vague abstract images. Which oddly enough, later on in this Top of the Pops episode, there is a song which I distinctly remember seeing precisely because of its abstractness, I think, of the imagery around right. me. So, yeah, my memories are, 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 are very, very kind of piecemeal of this era because I was just so so young. Taylor. Um, Same age as Neil, aren't you? Yeah. As I may have said before at this point, um, I was living in a, a, a falling down cottage because we'd moved out of our crappy uh, semi-detached house because my dad fancied himself as a bit of a handyman. So he bought his mate's cottage that was on the market for almost nothing because there'd right. been a, pro- a property crash. So we were living in that in the country. So this sort of explains a lot. So between the ages of about <laughs> four and six and seven, I was really isolated because I'm an only child and I was living in this uh, cottage just surrounded by fields and woods mm-hmm. and rivers. Um, and this was like the days, Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, like Paul McCartney chose to do as an adult. My days were just spent kind of wandering around, walking around in the forest and down by the river and looking at stuff. Um, there's lots of stuff that I can remember from that period that is, uh, I'm not quite sure if I invented it and that sort of stuff. But there's um, a clear memory that came back to me that I haven't thought about for uh, 40 years, which. Uh, Something in this programme acted rather like the Proustian Madeline. And there I oh, was. really? Yeah, hanging onto a tree root um, on a sandy bank, trying not to f- slide right down a sandy bank, trying to oh. haul myself back up to the oh. surface because I thought I'm going to fall down here and they'll never find me. Um, oh, well, did you see the spirit this... of dark water lingering <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the distance? Just, just like that, just like that. That branch can't happening. take his weight. <laughs> <laughs> While this was happening, going around in my head was Don't Give Up On Us by David Salt. <laughs> <laughs> on a loop, which I think was my message. It was That was the message I was receiving from the spirits of those <laughs> I would have <laughs> left behind. Um, and I hung on to that tree root and in the end 
pulled my little weight back up. Um, went off for tea. About a year after that, we moved back into another crappy semi-detached house. So Oh, he gave the, up, did he? Yeah, it had, you have to call it a failed experiment. <laughs> well, I was in my second year at Westglade uh, Junior School because uh, I'd, 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 I'd been nine for a couple of months. And uh, the, the big thing that was going on in my life at the, at the at the time was Forest. I went to my first game about two weeks before this episode. Uh, my mate, who I mentioned in the previous episode of Chart Music, as uh, as being a stylist and ending up sniffing glue in the infant school sandpit, his dad took me and him to uh, to see Forest against Ipswich, and we battered them four nil. And Peter Wiv scored all four goals. And after he scored the fourth one, he just turned round and I swear blind, he gave the thumbs up at me and me alone. <laughs> As if to say, come and join us, Al, forever and ever and ever. It's great now. It'll be fucking horribly disappointing <laughs> in later life, but it's fucking great now. And yeah, so th- th- there was that. Um, I'm, on the downside, the uh, the childhood terror of, of this time for me uh, was Bummer Dog. <laughs> uh, we we had a lot of stray dogs on our estate mm-hmm. and uh, one of them was this dog who would just trot into the playground uh when we were when we were either on playtime or just about to go to school and uh take his pick of the litter and knock them down and start humping them oh terrifying I was... hashtag me too were you scared of dogs Al? no because i'd had dogs oh, right. but the dogs on our estate were fucking mental I mean, Bummer Dog, he, his reign of terror lasted for a few good months. And yeah, you yeah, know. That, that's actually just recalled an incident to me, being chased around an estate, well, a bit of an estate called the Box Hill in Coventry, by just a pack of feral... Mm. There were a lot of stray dogs back then. Just a pack yeah, of were. feral stray dogs. And it terrified me about dogs for about 10 years after that. Even as a teenager, if I was in a park mm. and I saw a dog, like, you know, sort of half a mile away, I'd start bloody trembling. This is around the time of the rabies scare mm. as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The other great dog of uh, of our estate um he didn't get a name for some bizarre reason but he had the dangliest bollocks ever <laughs> they dangled so much that they actually kind of like dragged and jounced along the concrete as he walked along that's no good to him you know you'd be walking along playing football and this dog would walk back and he was happy enough he, you know he was getting some kind of kick out of it by the look on his face and you know I think this is the first time by I the look aware. on his face yeah well he was smiling he was one of those smiling yeah. happy dogs mm-hmm. passion in his eyes yeah <laughs> yes and uh, I must say it was the first time that I was aware of my own genitalia because everyone, every lad playing football would suddenly stop and just, just grab their bollocks out of out of fear and, and sympathy. But then there was one time we were playing football and you could hear from a street away just kids pissing themselves laughing. And the laughing got louder and louder and louder. And then all of a sudden this dog turned up and some good Samaritan had put a pair of Y-fronts on the dog. <laughs> I have told you the the great story about how my mum pulled a bra out of a dog's arse, haven't I? <laughs> have I not told you this? I think you should tell well, it I, again. I've pretty much said it all. I mean, it's not something she wants to talk about. Um, so I, I, I honestly don't know whether it was... I mean, I'm guessing it's just some bikinis or something. It's like, well, okay. Because it you know, can't be a proper bra because all that underwiring, you just mm, don't want to mm. think about it, do you? But you just think, well, did, did the dog eat the bra or 
did some you shove the bra up the dog's arse. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, every time I try and bring the subject up, she will not talk about it. So, you know, there you go. And there was other people watching. There was other people watching and not doing anything. And my mum, the Mother Teresa of Top Valley Dogs, just got in there and just pulled it out. Of course, the actual Mother Teresa of Top Valley Dogs would have put the dog on a slab and left it there. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm intrigued now. I really want to know how the yeah, bra no. got up there. I mean, Do we have to talk about Top of the Pops for the next three hours? <laughs> Discarded bras are just intriguing anyway. Why would somebody yeah. discard that? I mean, whenever I've seen one, you know, like you see gloves on railings and stuff. Mm. Sometimes you do, honestly. Yeah. You see just a massive bra. Why? It's not an item that could be soiled, like however drunk you got. <laughs> I don't know. We're not the people to talk about this, no, are we? Next time Sarah's on, we'll ask. But even, How even easy after, is it to soil a bra? Even after 10 bottles of Prosecco, you don't start lactating. No. No, <laughs> no not even that. What about throwing up down your bra, though? Yeah. <laughs> I bet Madonna's done that. <laughs> Maybe that's why Madonna had her armpits under the dryer. I had a dog around this time. Um, it's the only dog I've ever had. He was... It was when we were living in this cottage. He was supposed to be a black lab, but I think he was the runt of the litter. His head was the wrong shape, and he just used to eat things like books and stuff and shoes, and he was really a bit dodgy. And in the end, uh, my parents couldn't couldn't control him, and he had gone one day, and my dad said, oh, I took him to live with an old lady in the country who's got a lot of dogs in a big house. And for about 20 years, I assumed that was a euphemism and they had him put down. And then one day, <laughs> I said to my dad about the dogs, we have the dog put down. And he said, what? We didn't have a dog put down. I said, I thought we did. He said, no, I took him to uh, live with an old lady in the country who had a load of dogs in a big house. <laughs> so there you go. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One has started at one o'clock with Pebble Mill at one. Heads and Tails, You and Me, then it's 45 minutes of schools programmes, then international golf before piling into play school, Lippy the Lion and Hardy Ha Ha, Jack and Ore, Scooby-Doo and John Craven's News Round and then Blue Peter sent John Noakes to Brazil to look at that opera house in the middle of the Amazon. Followed by Barbara Popper, the evening news, regional news in your area, then tomorrow's world. Bizarrely, Top of the Pops tonight is starting at 10 minutes past seven. What the fuck? That's right. BBC Two has run the international goal from 12.45, then closed down for three hours at two o'clock, and then run Open University at five to five before closing down again for another hour, before running the news at seven. They're currently screening Inside Germany about how that country is currently scrapping their comprehensive school system. ITV has broadcast schools programmes, Animal Quackers, Stepping Stones, The News at One, then the proto-loose women show Women Only, Racing from York, the Labour Party Conference, then Little Ass on the Prairie, The News at 5.45, Crossroads, Regional News in Your Area, and they're currently introducing us to the world of Pam Ayres. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? She's got her own show. I, I, got her I, own fucking world, mate. <laughs> 
See, I just remember it on That's Life occasionally. I don't remember it getting her own show. Bloody hell. Oh, fight. yes. Yeah. She was quite the thing. She was quite the thing in the late 70s. There was also Palmer's Hong Kong Christmas. Yes. Yeah, and she, she did all them adverts for meat, didn't she? Yeah. All right, then, Pop Craze Youngsters, it's time to go way back to October of 1977. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Hello and welcome to the programme that you can have in any colour as long as it's black. Your host for this evening is Noel Edmonds. Right about now, he's been the breakfast show host for four years and he's into his second series of the multicoloured swap shop. Neil, you haven't put yourself about with uh, with our Noel yet, have you? No, I haven't, no. Um, I mean... So I need to ask the first question. Tiswas or swap shop? Ah, you see, I've got to say, right, both. Or, but, or, or but... Saturday morning detention. <laughs> not yet, not yet. But, I mean, I've got to say both. And also... I, People yeah. ask when they ask what you're into when you what you were into when you were a kid. There is a tendency, I think, with with a lot of with a lot of us to rebrush it a little bit according yes. to modern taste. I think the official line now is, is that Tiz was was far superior, and that mm. uh, Tiz was is what the cool kids watch. In a sense, similar to the way that Magpie is what the cool kids watched and not Blue Peter. But yeah. um, if I'm genuine about it. I liked Noel at the time. He was comf- yeah. he was comforting, and Saturday, mm. uh, sorry, Swap Shop was comforting. It was warm and gentle, whereas Tiz was was kind of chaos. Um, yes. and chaos isn't always what you want to see as a kid. Uh, for no. me, it was it, a key moment actually for me, Al. If I can elaborate a bit more, is that much later in the nineties, I remembered, I realised the folly of kind of pretending to be cool in your taste when you were a kid because mm. um, I was reading you know articles in the music press where people were saying yeah in the 70s I listened to the Stooges and all this sort of stuff yeah. and I always thought that was nonsense and kind of I remember I was lying this is this is a sidetrack but I'm going to do it anyway um, I was lying on my on my carpet watching some crap on telly and this was in the 90s it would have been Pebble Mill or mm. Afternoon Plus with Gloria Honeyford or something like that. And mm-hmm. um, it went, the, the show finished, or it went to Wads, and it was a sunny day outside. The sun was shining in. And momentarily, I caught a precise reflection of my face in the screen as I was watching this utter pile of shit. And mm. the idiot glee on my face, <laughs> the, the happiness I had, the contentment I had with this pile of crap I was watching, it was really revealing to me that actually, mm. if I'm honest, I don't look for challenging stuff. And I certainly didn't when I was a kid. Though I loved Tiz Was in bits, I like Lenny Henry, I like the bands mm. in cages, I like the odd moment, I was too young to be sexually aroused by Sally James or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I preferred the dependability of Noel and Swap Shop. Noel mm. would keep talking even when things went wrong. And yeah. really, all I was into it for was the steady diet of kind of grape ape and Hong Kong fooey. That's what mattered. Yeah. When it went to the live bits with Cheggers out in the park somewhere doing some swaps, that's when yeah. I turn over to Tiz was. So yeah. I was actually really fond of fond of Noel when I was younger because he was what you want as a kid sometimes is a sense of order and a sense of control. I know it's yes. boring, but you really do you were comforted by that. Noel mm. had that. Chris Tarrant and Sally James didn't. Um, yeah. So for that warmth and gentleness, I've got to say, I was a swap shop kid, not a t- not a kid. All three of us are from the great nation of ATV land, so yeah. you know our loyalty should be towards Tiswas. Taylor, your thoughts? No, I was I was Tiswas. I was a lot nearer to Birmingham than Neil, 
So mm. you sort mm. of felt like the, the the energy radiating from ATV land every Saturday morning. You just yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I I was always dubious of Edmonds, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's the thing is, you look at him now, he's like a lot of DJs, in that you try to picture someone with this personality and this image and this manner of speaking in your everyday life, like working in an office with you or living in the room upstairs, and you can't imagine them having a friend in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt this about Chris Evans as well, right? Mm-hmm. What? How come the blokes who would get, like, three people turning up at their birthday drinks are the ones who make a living out of their personalities? Yeah. Um, and Noel Edmonds especially always struck me as... He's like he's the kind of person that Reggie Perrin was trying to get away from, you know what I mean? <laughs> the sort of specifically Southern English, uh, home owning, no sense of humour monster from the suburbs, but with extra extra narcissism and wrongness. And this was the face of British pop music. Yes. <laughs> the interesting thing about him is that we're used to mad people being eccentric in some way. And by mm. ma- I don't mean like mentally ill, I mean crazy. I mean divorced from reality. Uh, we're used to the raggedy square peg type. But Edmonds is, the, is that weirdest thing. He's a totally dull, weak personality square and high achiever uh, who goes totally around the twist. And <laughs> nobody, nobody notices until it's already happened. And suddenly yeah, it's too late. Yeah, suddenly this 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 family entertainer is coming on like David Icke or the Unabomber for for <laughs> mansion dwellers with pilot's license. So you can imagine the same thing happening to Michael Owen, I always thought, right? Is the it's that same mixture of indignant straightness and a sort of unearthly creepiness. Like that's that sort of the bleak dead-eyed inhumanity and sheer <laughs> stupidity to tell someone with cancer that it's their own fault for mm. having a negative attitude and not spending 300 quid on a on a fucking magic box invented by a crank with no conscience and it's this it's a personality disorder whatever this is is a personality disorder and in that sense it's quite mundane but at the same time that specific combination of factors is very unusual and i think only activated by money and success and self-confidence. Mm. But I mean, at this point in time, 1977, he is, well, he's definitely the king of Radio 1, but now he's a he's a hugely recognisable face on the BBC. Yeah, but for me, he was still kept, um, apart from Top of the Pops, in kids' telly, really. Um, mm. uh, and he wasn't, he hadn't started that, you know, dominating people's Saturday evenings. For me, he started destroying right. any f- fondness I had for him. The moment he started, you know, dropping pianos on top of innocent members of the public later on. Um, yes. At this period, he was just... That'll do it. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, at this time, he was just a sort of faintly avuncular host of this kid's programme. And to me, yeah. just a linking device to the next episode of, like I say, Hong Kong Fui. Um mm. So he wasn't so obtrusive. It's when he got delusions that he was just the greatest entertainer in England, the greatest TV entertainer. And he mm. kind of saw himself almost as an almost Letterman type figure as kind of like a yeah. TV innovator. God, yeah. That's when, that's when he started destroying any, any, any fondness, any fondness I had for him. I only found out the other day that in the mid 
in the mid eighties, he had a uh, he had a very short run as a chat show host in America. Have you seen that? Oh my Godfathers! It's like a lot of people when they go to America, thinking that they're the business, you know. And like you, you get to New York or LA, and you are just a small provincial Englishman mm-hmm. uh, who people just look at like, who is this guy? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, he made. Uh, made Chevy Chase's career in uh, <laughs> Chacho look like a roaring success, didn't it? It's kind of old hat to sort of talk about what he looks like and everything, you know, but it's one of those things that's become so familiar to people that they've stopped seeing it. Yes. Uh, it, 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 you don't notice how weird it is, but no one else has ever looked quite like this. <laughs> like he's, In this episode, he's got a hairstyle that's like blow-dried or back-combed into a, a sort of a cone that extends about five inches above his cranium, like whirled into a, into a hollow cone, but with a deep centre parting which continues past the top of his head. Um, and then there's that slope on either side, so the hair is, is pyram- pyramidal, but each side is like swept to a curled tip so it looks like the the drooping wings of a dead kestrel and to have this haircut at all is peculiar but to have it when you stand five foot five in high-heeled slip-ons is flabbergasting and to combine it with an estate agent's beard and a uh, a condescending also it's the fact that he has no shoulders he's got the the narrowest feeblest shoulders I've ever seen on a grown man and he doesn't understand that wearing suits with big starched pointy shoulders on them and having a haircut that effectively trebles the size of his head (laughs) will accentuate how small and slight he is and it's like his unearned self-confidence is so extreme that he doesn't notice this he has because he has no taste his vanity has made him uglier uh, rather than more beautiful. I mean, the, the 70s appeared to be, for men, uh, the thing to do was try and make your face as big as possible. Mm. So, you you know, you were uh, you you were very on trend, Neil, at the time. I mean, do, do you think, do you think, do you think Edmonds and DLT were in some kind of competition to see who could have the biggest face? It's that leonine thing, isn't it? They're trying to look like yes. man lions in a way. But, but 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 Noel, I mean, do you remember when we were talking about the 70 episode, we were talking about that Man Alive documentary. Yes. No, Noel absolutely fits with the fucking weirdos on that. Do you know what I mean? He's kind yes. he, he, What Taylor was saying really fits in also with what, what previously been said about Tony Blackburn. These, these strange individuals who genuinely haven't got any friends and mm. yet appear, you know, they, they're, they're sort of friends of the nation, if you like. And the old story yes. about Peely, the old story about Peely going to Noel Edmonds' house and um, not finding any records and not finding That's any... That's DLT, re- Oh, oh shit, sorry. But you can imagine Noel being exactly the same way. What use would that man have for music? Yeah. Um, yeah or it's... something to listen to when he's in his many cars, <laughs> no doubt. But he's clearly a sociopath because you remember his funny phone mm. calls that he oh, used to gosh, do? Yeah. <laughs> like the, <clears throat> the most toothless prank calls you've ever heard. Like, it's all a harmless chuckle and, you know... But it's still Noel having the laughs at your expense, mm-hmm. right? So there's, it's, you get the worst of both worlds. It's like they mustn't upset anyone, uh, mustn't 
being poor taste. But at the same time, it's you that look stupid while Noel is the chuckling prankster sniggering at you from a higher level, as though from his chopper. But those Saturday evening shows that sort of made him a really big star in the 80s, um, annoyingly inventive in a way, because when you watch Saturday Night Takeaway... when For British TV. Yeah, yeah. When you watch Saturday Night Takeaway, the Anton Deck show, the whole thing Mm. about, you know... You remember on those shows, there were those moments where it suddenly cuts somebody's living room and stuff like that. That Mm. is all still happening. All of those... All of those kind of motifs and ideas he came up with those shows are still getting mined and used. So I'm sure he reassures himself with that and kind of has a real layer of bitterness about that. that I bet he hates Anton Deck. Yeah, I mean, I presume he still considers himself a major innovator and a changer of British Mm. culture. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he he, he sort of rapidly, because of his megalomania and his kind of self-delusion about how important he was, he destroyed any affection that any of us kids might have had from him. From the 70s. Mm. So that by the mid-80s, if you were a kid who grew up with him in the 70s, you fucking hated Noel Edmonds by the, by the 80s. So as part of the deep and detailed research that the pop craze youngsters demand, I have in front of me right now the Multicoloured Swap Shop book, which was published in 1978. And let me ripple through it because it is a testament to the edifice that is Noel. <laughs> Let's have a look. Okay, so Noel Edmonds. Birthday, 22nd of December. Birthplace, Ilford, Essex. Colour of eyes, blue. Colour of hair, brown. Hobbies, decorating, motor racing, photographer. Cars, Jaguar XJS, XJ6, Triumph TR7 and the Ford GT40. His favourite food, chips and (laughs) brown sauce. Whoa, eh? Fancy that. <laughs> Favourite music. This would be interesting. Anybody want to take a guess? When's this annual will thumb out? 1978. 1978. Um, All male soloists. I thought it would have been smooth ballads sung by a beautiful lady with a beautiful <laughs> <voice>. <laughs> Male soloists. Oh, man. See, this is it. We can't penetrate his brain. There's no way of guessing this. B.A. Robertson. Paul McCartney. Harry Chapin, Neil Diamond, <laughs> Elton John, <Yeah>. Julian Bream. Julian! <laughs> yeah. Likes, Jersey Cows, Polyfiller, <laughs> Donuts, The Lake District. Dislikes, Large Leaking Oil Tankers, and people who don't say please and thank you. And he probably would have added unions or something like that. <laughs> John Craven, do you want to care to have a guess what his favourite music is? Ooh. No, let's not even bother. <laughs> Olivia Newton-John, The Moody Blues, and Gustav Mahler. Oh, but... <laughs> and, and what bands do you think Keith Chegwin likes? Um, oh, 78. Uh, Shawaddy Waddy? No. <laughs> He'll like pop. He'll like pop. So um, yeah, but uh, they are the most cheggerish bands ever. <laughs> Is it? But basically, Rollers were over by then. No, no, yeah. Think, think, think of 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 satin bomber jackets. <laughs> if only that, that would narrow it down. The Doolies, <laughs> Wings, Queen, and ELO, Man of the People. See, uh, yeah. We like the music. We like the disco sound. Hey. Yeah. 
Edmonds, in a grey suit and a spotty tie, does some rubbishy Ford Model T-related intro and introduces this week's top 30 as we hear Black is Black by La Belle Epoque. Formed in Italy in 1976, La Belle Epoque were essentially a disco vehicle for the French singer Evelyn Lenton, which makes me laugh because that's Lenton, that's near me in Nottingham, <laughs> who performed throughout the 60s as Evie. Supported the Beatles and the Rolling Stones where they played Paris and relocated to London in the early 70s. In 1976, her brother invited her to move to Italy and form a group consisting of Jussie Fort from Cape Verde and Marcia Briscoe from America. This is their first release, a cover of the Los Bravos hit which got to number 2 in the UK in 1966 and it's up this week from number 8 to number three. Now, do we need to talk about the song first or do we need to talk about the pictures that accompany the top 30? Because we've got a very, very special crop this week, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. I mean, first off, we've got some really bad and very dark close-ups of George Benson, the old sailor, and Jean-Michel oh. Jarre, which is terrible, but which is, you know, of the style. Uh, but yeah, Giorgio Moroder, that's, uh, that's a bit of a special one, isn't it? Do you think that was uh, just uh, a candid photo taken? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that struck me was he's got an overexposed medallion round his neck. And it, first time I saw it, I thought, fucking, has he actually shaved a cock and balls onto his <laughs> airy chest? It looks, it's just like, fucking, that's a bit go ahead for 1977 and, and for 2018. <laughs> Medallions make a massive, massive appearance throughout this show. They're, they're really important. Yes, they do. Big, you know, this is peak denim aftershave advert period, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the other ones that, that jumped out at me were the doulas standing behind each other and leaning out, uh, giving off the impression that they're waiting for you to come out of a festival toilet. <laughs> Ram Jam looking like cowboys who have tagged their name on the wall while they're waiting for the methadone clinic to open. <laughs> uh, Mary Wilson in a phone booth during a nuclear explosion. Uh, yes, in a ridiculously dark and badly taken photo, dossing about on a bench as if they're casually trying to hide a spliff. And the emotions having their hands in the air as if making a protest against the police. <laughs> I like the shot of space as well. Oh, that's a brilliant one, isn't it? Oh, it's a brilliant shot. Yeah, always, always, always sort of a uh, lunar jetman helmets on. I really like that shot. Yeah, a bit like the Spotniks brought into the brought into the late seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, Edmonds is outfit. He's basically saying I'm above all this pop shit. Don't you think? Very, very David Jacobs kind of thing. It's 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 like taking us back to the to the top of the popses and the pop programs of yore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like a it's like a Hepworth's polyester mix uh, <laughs> suit. It's like one of those suits that, and we will see as the program goes on that it starts to crease up really badly. Yes, um, mm. it's one of those ones where, like, you know, your dad goes out to work wearing one of those in the morning and comes back, and it, you know. It looks like he, he's screwed it up into a ball and slept on it. Like as as it goes on, the the horizontal lines start to appear across the the crotch and thighs uh, from where you've sat down. I agree, Al, that it looks really dated mm. because 
you know, other presenters at the time, if they were wearing a suit, they'd have combined it in a, in a sexy and exciting way with a with a pair of jeans or maybe a t-shirt. Yeah, or just... at least undone undone their top button. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he, he's fully togged up. He, it, this is why it's so oddly reminiscent for me of previous episodes, like you say. And I haven't seen a top of the pops presenter dress like that since you know really early seventies episodes. So it's a bit strange, really. Yeah. Of course, at the time, uh, Noel Edmonds was doing an advertising campaign for Hepworths with uh, none other than uh, Tony Blackburn. Uh. He was wearing a ready-to-wear suit at £37.95, while Tony Blackburn was wearing a made-to-measure one at £37.95. Just about the same price. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. those two great friends sharing yes. a bit of banter yeah. uh, down at Hepworth. Yeah, they can't even agree on suits, man. They just fucking hate each other. But anyway, the song. It's good. This is right. Mm. This is a, a good song, anyway. The, but the the original, the Lost Bravos track, sort of does fizz with the tension of that comes from making beat music in a fascist country because those Spani- yeah. those Spanish group, and it's a sixties <laughs> track. Um, it's sort of more emotional sounding and a bit wilder than this version, but it has mm. that sort of slightly contained sound that you get mm-hmm. with a lot of beat music from non-rock countries, and especially from countries that are kind of monocultural. Whereas yeah. this is a crazy record, and it's great partly because it sounds like a load of kids let loose in a then-modern recording studio with a, mm. a fairly basic song to cover and a brief to make it sound ear-catching. So you get a bit of everything thrown in. You get uh, crazy textures there's a slightly illogical mix, uh, sort of black arc mm. type delay effects on the vocals. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a sort of decadence yeah, yeah. to this record, um, mm. to the sound and the spirit of it, which makes up for the sort of slight gaucheness. And yeah, you compare the original to this, and you're listening to the difference between uh, 60s Spain uh and late seventies Western Europe. Yeah, completely. I mean, I love the what the, what Taylor's mentioned there. The the echo on the vocals mm. is is so brilliant because it's not correct. It's kind of out of time slightly. Yeah. And the electronic nature of it for me, I prefer this to the to the sixties version massively. And it is it. I think you mentioned Al. It's quite a europhile top of the pop. Yes, very much so. Um, um, you know, and I, I don't think there's necessarily anything going on deep that we need, need to interpret about that. Mm. But um, it's really just an establishment that we, we've always been massively Europhile in our pop taste in this country. Mm. And and uh, it might be conjectured to say, I think rock fans voted out and pop fans voted remain. Mm. But they're, they're, I don't know. Um, Rock's I, it. I, 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 <laughs> But um, no, I, 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 to me, yeah, it is a really Europhile TOTP, but I think a lot of them have been and a lot of them are the charts. Mm. We have no problem with loving European pop music. I hear the power of ABBA in this cover as well. Mm. Um, there's a slight sense of those close harmonies. Yeah. But yeah, I love the echo on the vocals. Um, there's frequent times in this episode where for the first time in several years in Top of the Pops, I think, you can almost just faintly hear the future, mm. um, uh, the, the far future, one that isn't going to arrive yet. But you can hear the future, and I, and I hear that in, in the kind of echo on the vocals. It's a great song, this. This is their best record, but when you listen to their other stuff, like uh, Miss Broadway and Bama Lama and things like that, it is the same. It's this strange blend of 
like plasticky funk and synth noises and a, a bit of reggae and it's all held together by this dead simple relentless disco beat mm. i mean none of them are as good as this this is the one where they got lucky but there is that same sense of not giving a fuck running through all mm. their stuff in, right down to what they look like they're so weird they don't yeah. look like a group it's like they got these two weirdly anonymous black singers at the back who kept changing <laughs> they would get different ones in and hope that nobody noticed <laughs> and then this french lady of a certain age up front uh yeah, really yeah. going for it. it's like it's a karaoke on her 40th birthday and she's like you know really up for it um mm. really strange looking group and all the better for it i think but is this the beginning of the end for disco because you know, we're starting to see that people are going, oh, we can just do a cover version and just whack a disco beat on it. Because we've got the theme to fucking Star Wars at number 24 in a disco styler. Yeah. And nobody really needed that. I think we are we are by now in a time where people have realised that, that, it isn't, obviously, but people have realised it's it's kind of easy to do a disco tune yeah. and it's exploitable and it's immediately lucrative. Yeah. So you will get loads of songs that think that if they shove Boogie in the title and have yeah. this kind of vaguely electronic production, they're a disco tune and consequently, you know, this is going to be a, an earner. Only some of those records are good. Yeah. Most of them aren't, but this one wins out just by dint of, of the little bits that are excessive yeah. that, that don't really make sense, like the echo on the vocals and the electronic nature of the sort of backing. They are a weird band because the video that I've seen of the song, not, not this being played on top of the pots, the video I've seen of the song, the French lady who's singing it, um, oh, and the two backing singers. Yeah, yeah. The, the, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're doing the performance. But there's a, there's a black guy in the band who doesn't appear to do anything but but dance um he doesn't appear to sing you can't hear him on the track mm. but he apparently is part of the band so yeah they're a, a, a weird band but this this great little single this oh so they're trying to be boney m there yeah they, I, I immediately got that i mean i immediately thought that i was waiting for him to do some really low vocals yeah but he didn't he didn't rubbish <laughs> is this is the late 70s the last time that the french were really held up as that sophisticated race of people that never really came back i mean it, French pop. I can only think of Vanessa Paradis. <laughs> well, just Frenchness. Well, they, they brought a new smoothness to hip-hop, of course, when French <laughs> hip-hop got big, yes. didn't it? It was like, uh, you know. I think, in general, European stuff was held up as a kind of, yeah, a symbol of sophistication because people were starting to afford holidays over there. Um, mm. We're still only a few years away mm. After, I guess, a time when things like minestrone were considered exotic. I mean, they, they still would be for a while. So, yes. Yeah, definitely. The late yeah. 70s French culture and the, that, that, yeah, the French was still held up as a, a thing of sophistication. But I remember yeah. starting to hear tales from people who've gone over there about, oh, yeah, you have to crap in a hole on the ground and stuff. Um, it immediately ruined all of that for me the name Belle Epoque it sounds a bit you know a bit continental and and a bit saucy as well Uh, Taylor what does it mean it was uh, the the period in the sort of late 19th century very early uh, 20th century sort of like the the French version of the naughty 90s you know oh that makes a lot of sense but the problem is to to English ears it it does sound like belly pork (laughs) which which makes them sound like a a pub band (laughs) you know they they, they do blues yeah play biker pubs 
So the following week, Black is Black nudged up one place to number two and stayed there for three weeks. Fucking hell, nearly number one. It would be their only bit of chart action in the UK, however. And after a rotating cast of backup singers, Evie Lenton split up the group and eventually opened an off-license with the same name as her band. Really? I mean... Wikipedia says wine shop, but I like to think it's an off-license. <laughs> sitting behind there now selling lighters and lottery tickets. We go straight into the first performance of the night, Needles and Pins by Smoker. Formed in Bradford in 1964 as the Yen, then the Sphinx, then the Essence, and then the Elizabethans, and then Kindness, and then Peter Noon's backing band, Smoker finally got their break when they were picked up by Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman in late 1973. After spending 1974 recording their debut LP and supporting Pilot on tour, Smoke Air finally entered the UK charts in July of 1975 when If You Think You Know How To Love Me got to number three. Also around this time, the band were threatened with a lawsuit from Smokey Robinson over their name, so they had to change it from EY to IE. This is a follow-up to It's Your Life, which got to number five in August of this year, and it's a cover of the Searchers song that got to number one in February of 1964. It's just been released, and it's not yet in the charts. Smokey Robinson and Smokey the Band, I can, I can never tell them apart. Thank God that name change happened. I went to Wikipedia in the course of researching this to check a well, Don't give away our secrets, Smokey. Taylor. secret resource but it took me to a disambiguation page which said smoky may refer to smoky band an english rock band from bradford yorkshire smoky food sheep or goats prepared for food by blowtorching the fleece off the unskinned carcass which is more or less what they do to needles and pins here. <laughs> it's, of course, Edmonds with his dumb obliviousness and total failure of imagination where pop music is concerned. At the end, says, this is a song that you could justifiably call a pop mm. classic. Um, simultaneously misunderstanding pop music as a form in which concepts like classic and justifiable are useful or meaningful Mm. and making it very clear that it's not a classic it's a pop classic Mm. but it is a great song despite having been uh co-written by sonny bono yeah um and it's a a prototype of i'll feel a whole lot better by the birds and every version of it is great (laughs) except this one um this song is full of hurt and bitterness right and it speaks of the the pain of broken love and associated calamities in terms of physical torture. (laughs) Uh, The only consolation is that she'll feel those needles and pins hurting her, hurting her. It's a bit sort of 
it's a bit dark and you have to perform it either in the way that Jackie DeShannon did the original with a measure of anger and resentment mm. or the way the searchers did it with a sort of helpless emotional uh, attack whereas this is a chinny chap production yeah. and as such it's very compressed like the whole band has been mushed into a densely packed strip and when you do that to Susie Quattro or the sweet you end up with something really tight and powerful yeah. but when you do that to Smokey who don't play with any guts or drive and have a sort of open ringing um, laid back sort of sound especially on this particular song which is all based around suspended fourths and relative minors and is therefore about as different from blockbuster musically as you can mm. get that kind of sealed in sound just kills it so the group don't sound bothered um, and any mild exuberance in the playing is flattened down anyway so you've got all these early 60s Mersey beat chord changes and and harmonies but with that generic flat 70s studio sound like all the salty coastal air has been sucked out of it mm. um and there's nothing left yeah i mean this is a second 60s cover in a row i mean this is the, this is the the thin end of the wedge that leads to uh poison ivy by the lambrettas <laughs> isn't it the thing is, everything that Taylor says about um, this particular version, he's it, it, absolutely right. But precisely because I'm um, getting old, and like I said before, I'm easily pleased, <laughs> I, it does smooth out everything that the Searches version makes really apparent. I mean, the Searches version, is, is it's a tense song, and the lyrics are really dark about her being on her knees and feeling those needles and pins with in this version yeah. it does lose its tension it becomes something reassuring rather than uneasy well it becomes more a song about having bad circulation <laughs> isn't well, it well i mean accentuated by the fact that the <laughs> singer he smiles all the way through this song with, with no kind yes. of kind of relation to 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 what's going on lyrically and and the search is mm. original for me is, is i think my favorite version not just because you can hear the squeaky kick drum pedal at the beginning of it but it has a kind of yeah. tension to it this doesn't but that's precisely why i kind of enjoyed it as an, an almost sort of narcotic experience it's a nice sealed in um uh competent production of a brilliant brilliant song but if i had to choose a version of this to listen to this would probably be the last version i would listen to um what what i yeah. was really found myself concentrating on uh whilst watching it was the odd little shots of the audience you got um there's there's a woman oh, yes. in a big hat and i've got a horrible feeling yes. it's to do with the jubilee <laughs> or something yes it's it's a cross yeah. between a red white and blue mm. rosette and norman collier's oversized it's flat a fucking cap, easter it? bonnet or something and she's I, making sure we've seen it before we've seen something okay. very similar before around about she's this time but that's how you can tell which songs in this episode are from the studio mm. recording with noel edmonds mm. and which are repeats from the previous week or the week before because if she if, if she's mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. you yes. see it because that hat is it takes up half the space <laughs> in the audience uh whenever she's not visible you're right. watching she a makes from she makes yeah, yeah. sure throughout that she is seen when she can be um, and yeah. 
Uh, and also that she's not going to get hurt when a camera charges into her. <laughs> well, the camera height is absolutely crucial to, to the changing nature of Top of the Pots. At this point, the camera height is on an audience level. In coming years, what we'll see is that camera height will just lift until the audience become not dots, but something yeah. to be swooped over. At this time, the camera's still yes. living with the audience and is still low enough to catch the natives, as it were. Yes. But, I mean, this song, I mean, uh, at this point, the chinny chap magic is starting to fade, isn't it? This is, to my mind, this is chinny clap chap. <laughs> uh, you know, the band just look like they've, they've just, they're just piled out of the pub, which is, you know, what bands do anyway, but they, but they're, now they're starting to look as if they are, mm. you know, just regular blokes. Apart from the lead singer, of course, Chris Norman, who does look like he's gone on Stars in the Rise and said, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be Steve Marriott. <laughs> totally, Marriott. man. That's exactly what I thought. Um, the Steve Marriott yeah, thing is, yeah. Circa 1968, yeah. he's got that look nailed down, hasn't it? It's more like the Steve, Steve Marriott circa 1994. <laughs> um, he's, the trouble is, he's got the kind of face that doesn't really benefit from long hair. Yeah. He's got this sort of... Like, there is a bit of Marriott about him, but where he differs is that um, Steve Marriott looked like a cheeky chappy, yeah. whereas this fella mm. looks troubled. He has a long, sensible face with a flicker of anxiety and self-doubt. Yeah. Um, and really, those people should have short, neat hair and play a troubled Madison Avenue man in an episode of The Twilight Zone <laughs> or Alfred Hitchcock Presents... He's got that old-fashioned sort of born and adult face. And when you put a face like that inside that hair, um, it instantly loses any dignity he might have had. He looks like someone sne- sneaked up behind him and draped it over his head <laughs> or or dropped it on him from an upstairs window. It definitely it definitely is the tail end of Chinna Chapman's um, uh, any intrigue around them, really. Because, you know, they've... It, it's now all about smoky and it's about racy and it's not really about making pop that sounds now or sounds even like the future. It's just about kind of good songs from the 60s replayed with nice production. There yeah. isn't really a Chin and Chapman specialness to this record at all. Uh, yeah, I'm watching this as a nine-year-old. It's just like, well, this ain't for me. This is this is grown-up music. Mm, yeah, yeah. Also, the defining characteristic of the smoky sound was a kind of featureless surface if you listen to all of their stuff i mean it was inevitable that they would break from chinichap because they obviously fancied themselves as a real band Mm. but if you listen to the music they made afterwards um it still sounds uh, flat and machine made because even though they're quite muso-ish and organic the music they made, it's so motionless, like mm. the surface of a canal. <laughs> you know what I mean? All the, every chord seems inevitable and all the harmonies go where you expect them to. And the, this unnaturally balanced sound and all these songs just go through you and leave no trace. Yeah. Something so flat, they look astonishingly pleased with themselves throughout this performance. Every single lick, every single little drum roll, every single little thing that anyone in the band does, they look so smugly pleased with themselves about it. Mm. But there's that bass player who looks like the wacky Jack the Lad of the gang mm. in the 70s American sitcom. But this, what I don't like is the singer's face, yeah. though he looks like it's all a bit of a hassle being on top of the pop, especially mm. towards the end. Mm. He's looking off camera at the rest yeah, of the band. We should be on whistle sort test. Of blowing his cheeks out like, oh, 
here we go churning out news yeah. and pins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like this isn't the real meat of being in a band, like <laughs> which is your feet sticking to spilt beer on the stage of the Batley Odeon. It's pretty grim. It is. There's that. There's a real, we've done this before, lads, isn't it? A bit of a laugh, kind of. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I was while I was watching this, I was trying to decide who would be their audience, and I managed to narrow it down to Dennis out of Alveda's own pet. <laughs> I think he'd like Smoker. Yeah. Don't ask me why, but I just think, yeah, just no nonsense, get on with the job. I'll tell you what, I listened to uh, Living Next Door to Alice, the other oh, did day. you? Yeah, the, in the course of researching this, not for play. The original? I, well, they listened to the original by New World, which is even worse, and then the Smokey oh, yeah. original, and I sort of passed on the, the remake. But two things struck me about that song. First of all, it should have been a hot chocolate song because they yes. were experts at that kind of weepy hour tune short story. They could have really done it justice. Mm. And secondly... Some Candy Talking by the Jesus and Mary Chain <laughs> is stolen from it, almost note for note, yeah, the chorus. Really? Yeah. Um, and ironically, of those two songs, it's that's the one which could really have done with being remade with Roy Chubby Brown. Um, <laughs> who the fuck is Candy? Yeah, who the X is Candy? <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. <laughs> So the following week, Needles and Pins entered the chart at number 48 and would scamper up to number 10 a month later. The follow-up for a few dollars more would get to number 17 in February of 1978 and they'd have one more top 10 hit that year before diminishing returns set in and they split up for the first time in 1982. However, they'd have one last hurrah in 1995 when Chubby Brand joined them to re-record Living Next Door to Alex which got to number three in October of that year. Oh, I'm still laughing at the the, the picture of that. <laughs> Get Roy, Roy Chubby Brown in leather trousers. <laughs> song which I think you justifiably could call a pop classic. An oldie brought up to date there by Smokey and here's one of the best records in 1977 Best of My Love, the sound of the emotions. After deciding that Needles and Pins is a pop classic Edmunds introduces what he calls one of the best records of 1977 Fair play, no. The best of my love by The Emotions. Spawned in Chicago in the 1940s, The Emotions were three sisters, Wanda, Sheila and Jeanette Hutchinson, who formed a vocal group called the Hutchinson Sunbeams in 1962. After spending the rest of the 60s as a gospel group, they were spotted by Roebuck Pop Staples and they were signed to Stax Records and worked with Isaac Hayes. In the mid-70s, they linked up with Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire, who co-wrote this song with Earth, Wind & Fire guitarist Al McKay, which has already spent a whole month at number one in America. 
In the UK, it's up this week from number 7 to number 4. And because I can't make it in the studio and Legs and Co have got somewhere else to do, we are anointed with a clip from them doing the song on Soul Train. Let's talk about that first, chaps. Soul Train, fucking hell. Well, it's, it's oh. bigger, isn't it? And it's wider and there's more space. And there's more adults yes. than kids. And the kids that you see, they're on top yes. of things. They're cool kids in a way. They don't look at the camera. Yeah. They're not bothered about the camera, they're dancing. Yeah. So so whenever we got to see, and it was rare, but whenever we got to see little clips of Soul Train, um, American yeah. superiority, which we were all kind of ground under, just got, you know, reproved in a way. This is well-ordered. Uh, black, black American, American superiority, superiority massively. Superiority I mean, as well. it's a well-ordered performance, and there's no darkness, there's no night-timey sense of it like there is on Top of the Pops. It's better produced. They were better at telly. They they, they could do it. They'd, I guess I had longer experience. If American Bandstand started in, like, 58 mm. or whatever, they've got longer experience of doing pop telly. So Soul Train was yeah. always a joy to see those those little clips that you did get to see. And and now, you know, if I wanted mm. to listen to old music via the medium that an awful lot of people use, which is YouTube, it would be Soul Train that I'd be going for. Because some of those performances, mm. uh, the fucking James Brown performances, just by themselves, yes. are just amazing. Yes. And this performance is just utterly fantastic. Yeah, because there was one band, uh, Blue Magic, who did Sideshow on Soul Train. And... You know, mm-hmm. as you're watching Soul Train, your eyes are going all over the shop like they're doing Top of the Pops. And you just see this couple near the front and they're doing slow dancing, but they're doing slow robot dancing. Oh, wow. <laughs> in 1974. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's the performance of uh, Make It Funky by James Brown, where there's one lad who's got an Adidas hold all on his head and he's fucking robot in a way. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. It pains me to say, but Soul Train pisses on top of the pops from an enormous height. From an enormous height. And when Michael Jackson does the robot for the first time with the Jackson 5 performance of Dancing, Dancing uh, yeah. Machine, it's just fucking fantastic. Absolutely yes. fantastic. Yes. Yeah, no oversized Jubilee hat. <laughs> no. And it does it does look a nicer atmosphere than top of yeah. the pops. It like despite the fact that they were probably being poked around like cattle yeah. too. At least this isn't quite so redolent of stewed BBC tea yes. and yeah. cameramen with sweat patches <laughs> under the arms of their polyester shirts. It just sort of glows with a, a deeper focus on the music mm. and a healthier attitude to sex. And yeah. nobody's being driven home from Soul Train on the freezing leather seats of a Morris Marina <laughs> by a dad who's come out driving in his slippers. <laughs> and... That in a way that's what makes Top of the Pop so brilliant. But the lack of that is yeah. Don Cornelius kept his hands to himself at all times. I, I, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> but it's it's also what the lack of that kind of thing is what makes Soul Train so brilliant. And it's weird to see a clip on Top of the Pops uh, featuring an audience who can actually yeah. dance. Yeah. Yes. Although there are a couple of duffers in there flying the flag for stiffness mm-hmm. and poor coordination. But yeah. Wouldn't it have been amazing if Top of the Pops had had their own version of the Soul Train Walk? Can you imagine the fucking joy that could have been wrung out of that? (laughs) But of course, I mean, both shows are expressions of national character, aren't they? I mean, Top of the Pops is perfect for British pop music and for Britain. It it Mm. suits us, our crampness, our discomfort, our inability to, to... you know our general inability to dance as well as this. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, and I mean, the, it, it, and the amazing 
weird products that can sometimes emerge from that milieu. Mm, in yeah. fairness, the th- the thing is what Taylor said about the dancers. There are a few duffers, but what what's glorious about it? I mean, uh, Top of the Pops never um, in the seventies anyway. It did earlier on, but never in the seventies had that big enough space so that couples yeah. could dance together. Yeah. And and more importantly than that, people who weren't with anybody could dance by themselves and yeah. create their own space around them. There's a couple of guys in the audience for this mm. who, you know, they haven't they're not with anybody, but they're just creating but they're their gonna own moves. Be. Yeah, yeah, well, they're just creating their own moves in their own space, and it's just one. It, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful clip. A, a good clip for an. Uh, I mean, uh, if we can move on to talk about the song for an immaculate record. Yes, yes, and it is, isn't it? Well, I mean, uh, as a hip hop fan, obviously, I'm always reminded of third base Brooklyn Queens by yes, this, but it we'll immediately get, gives me that earworm. But um, the emotions were great, and and the albums that they were releasing round about this time, Rejoice and Flowers and things like that. I mean, anyone who likes. We're at peak EWF time here. Yes, we Because are. they're coming off a run of albums, you know, That's the Way of the World, Gratitude and Spirit, etc. Um, you know, anyone who's got them and hasn't got the Emotions albums from the same period should should get them. It's a mm. fantastic song. Morris could have sung it, but it yeah. needs Wanda Hutchison. And it needs yeah. female vocals. It, it is, it's a brilliant record, this. Yeah. And also the... Um the atmosphere of the show carries over into the performance and their rapturous smiles at the beginning Mm. actually look and seem completely genuine like it's like it looks like they're out having a good time in a club and then this record comes on and that's the smile that most people would be wearing when they heard the intro of this record come on it's like they understand that this is their best record and they're as thrilled to be a part of it as anyone else would be and I'm not even sure if that kind of joy and abandon is possible now, which is not a backwards-looking thing to say because there's lots of stuff about contemporary pop music that's as good or, or better than ever, like the, the sound design and the, mm. the carefree attitude to the past. But what has or what seems to have largely gone is the simple expression of positive emotion that isn't mm. sickly and sentimental or empty-headed or based on having defeated somebody else Uh, Mm. and I think if you put this record out now and you were just a group of normal looking women who happened to be really good singers and there was no fake attitude just this I'm not even sure if it'd be accepted I think you might be seen as rather naive or a bit (laughs) old-fashioned I think the the joy that comes across in their performance is precisely because they're on Soul Train. You know, you know when yeah. you sometimes see a Top of the Pops performance, and you can tell that it means so much to the people, the yeah. band involved, yeah. that they're on Top of the Pops. I think that's the way the emotions are feeling here. You know, this is a mm. song born for Soul Train in a sense, and yeah. and for for a band like the Emotions being on Soul Train, that is the same sort of zenith that, that being yes. on Top of the Pops would be to a British. British artist, so it's that lovely coming together of all those things with such a brilliant record. This is for me um, the absolute toppermost of the poppermost of the whole show. It's the best bit. Mm. And they did one of my favourite Christmas records as well. You know uh, what the oh, yeah. lonely do at Christmas? Oh, Gee. yeah. Sorry, that's just a, going off at a tangent there. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't heard that. I'll, I'll, I'll dig yeah. it out. What do they do? <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. They they don't they probably watch non-stop episodes of Bullseye on the challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like where they just, just put saying, it on all God, day. I'm out of this fucking shit. Yeah, with the pre-recorded continuity announcements. So the following week, the best of my love. 
fucking, I can't believe I'm saying this, dropped one place to number five. Fucking British cunts. <laughs> the follow-up, I Don't Want to Lose Your Love, would only get to number 40 in December of this year, but they teamed up with Earth, Wind and Fire in the spring of 1979 for Boogie Wonderland, which got to number four. Oh, man. Oh, I don't know which one's the better between that and this. I've got to say Boogie Wonderland. I mean, that is... That's like God swooping down and giving you a nosh, that song. <laughs> <laughs> Really great song, that absolutely marvellous emotions and best of my love. And the next song is really quite self explanatory. It comes from Danny Mirror. I remember Elvis Presley. Lord, how I love to. So I'll adore him just forever For he's the one and only king Edmunds rightfully drools over the last song some more before making a non-introduction for I Remember Elvis Presley by Danny Mirror. Born in Rotterdam in 1946, Eddie Owens worked as a concert organiser as a teenager until he offered to fill in as lead singer for the Edisons and changed his name to Eddie Nelson in 1966. After moderate Dutch chart success in the late 60s, he switched to producing while holding side jobs as a publisher, plugger and weekend disc jockey and in 1972 he became the presenter of the Dutch TV show Popzian. I think that means pop scene. <laughs> After scoring regional hits as a producer, he wrote Ding Ding a Dong, Teaching's 1975 Eurovision winning song, and his performing career seemed to be in the past. Then, six weeks before this episode of Top of the Pops, Elvis died while he was having a shit, and Owen <laughs> sprang into action. Writing this tribute to the king the next day, having it pressed the day after, and releasing it the day after that before Elvis had even been buried. This caused the Dutch music paper Hit Krant to describe the single as, and I apologise to our Dutch listeners in advance, Licken Pickeridge, which various <laughs> internet translators say means looking for corpses or deadly spanking. <laughs> Also, sorry about our football supporters. We think they're cunts too. <laughs> the original version, which shot straight to number one in Holland, had an introductory voiceover by the Radio Nordsee newsreader Tony Burke. But when it was released over here, it was introduced by Radio Luxembourg's Tony Prince. And after four weeks in the chart, it's gone up this week from number 11 to number eight. Well, 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 the king is seven weeks cold in the grave now, and we are still grieving here in Britain. Can, <laughs> can you chaps remember? Uh, I love the title of this record, like it's a boast. Like he's only been dead six <laughs> weeks, and it was headline news around the world, and all his records are back in the charts. And this guy mm. thinks he's like Solomon Cherishevsky, or he's like the <laughs> musical memory man. He's standing there with one hand to his temple, going, oh, it's all coming back to it. Didn't he have sort of slick back hair? Like, yeah. very dark hair, like a crow. Yeah. <laughs> uh. 
There's something hugely necrophiliac about Elvis worship anyway. It's like the same mm. as with, uh, you know, like Marilyn Monroe fans and their weird sadism. It's like, whatever you might say about Mad Lennon fans, they're not really like that. Whereas with Elvis, no. there's always this Christ-like thing, like his death was the whole point and his mm. life mm. and work was it only makes sense in the context of that. It's really creepy. Um, mm. But... Alas, this record is only creepy in concept, not in execution. So even as an early example of the Elvis death cult, it's not as interesting as it should be. No. No. Neil, can you remember when Elvis died? Well, this is it. I was, I was racking my brains. I genuinely can It was in remember. all the papers, you know. I know it was in all the papers. I'm sure it was in the news. I remember nothing about Elvis dying whatsoever. Oh, because man. I think, to be honest with you, by then... He'd already effectively sealed himself off from pop mm. and from our lives. And it was already a retro thing. And crucially, somebody didn't really care about success anymore. Mm. Um, and, and this, you know, th- what staggers me is what you just said, Al, about this going back up the charts at this point. Mm. Um, you know, this is a gesture purchase, as it was. It's a slow pull up the charts. It really is. Yeah. And, and Elvis by then had already become a metaphor for stardom, for pop music, for entropy, for the collapse of things. Um, I'm astonished this was this was going back up the charts. The Elvis record that is in the chart, yeah. Way Down, yes. that's awesome. Mm. That's almost like a glam record. Mm. Um, but I do think the seven Elvis had to die in 77 or towards the end of the 70s, not just because of his lifestyle, etc. But it was the last decade I think Elvis could have got away with his shit. Mm. Um, he that he could have got that ever since he come back from the army, he was laughing at himself to a certain extent, mm. um, and that humour, that that crook lip, that kind of humour about himself, he was already parody, and it, and it, and he kind of knew it. Yeah. So so this record, I mean. <sighs> It doesn't sum up, I don't think, you know, much of anything or anyone's feelings about Elvis. But um, Danny Mirror looks, I mean, the performance, like like, like, when he puts his head to it, when he puts his hand to his head, Mm. like he is, like Taylor mentioned, like he's just trying to recollect (laughs) Elvis Presley. It's just astonishing. And, And... and the jacket, what the fuck oh, well, is going on there? Yeah, right, 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 right. Right, before we go into Sorry. the jacket, before before the 10-minute dissection of the jacket, mm, um, mm. I remember Elvis Presley when he died. Because uh, mm. I was, I remember the night I was, I was, uh, I was staying around my nonos and I'm sitting on my grandpa's knee watching the news at 10 and I was there when Reggie Bowes and Kay announced it and then got the phone call to say, oh, it, it might be a load of bollocks. And so mm. news at 10 ended on a right cliffhanger because they said, oh, we don't know. We don't know if Elvis is dead or not. So, uh, you know, if, if we hear anything, we'll let you know later on. And I was sent straight up to bed. But before before that happened, me not always sat there watching it and she pulled on a fag and said, hey, you, your dad will be roaring into his pint tonight. And I was just terrified of my dad making a complete arse of himself because he was, he was mad into Elvis. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I just went to bed and I actually prayed for one of the few times in my life that, that Elvis would live so my dad wouldn't make a tit of himself in the pub or at the very least everyone else would be crying too it, I'm not lying this is the first time that a news event impacted upon yeah. my family yeah. and my life can you recall what your dad thought of this record the Stanley Mirror record Um, he, he probably agreed with it I mean, the astonishing bit about it is when it slips into Elvis songs halfway through. Yes, it, it does. Yeah, are oh, you lonesome tonight? I mean, Do you miss hell. him tonight? 
And it's an ex- it is an exercise in ambulance chasing. Well, yeah. hearse chasing. Uh, lick and pickerage, um, Neil. Come on, let's <laughs> let's have the oh, yeah. correct term. But let us speak about the outfit. Well, uh, I only jotted down one thing, Al, and that's that he looks like the shittest stalker in The Running Man ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what he looks like. He just looks fucking... It's some... I mean, he's got an Elvis T-shirt on underneath. I wonder whether that was his original plan. Mm. And then this jacket was foisted upon him, or whether it was no, a sartorial no, 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 choice no, 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 of his own. No, I think, I think this is a deliberate. This is a deliberate look. I mean, I have got if Shaking Stevens' denim jacket had sex with Roger Daltrey's fringe jacket from the early seventies, uh, this would be a Pearly King version of that. He's like Pearly Shaking Daltrey, isn't he? <laughs> Except if you look closely, the the. What's actually stuck to his jacket is little white buttons, like yeah. he put on a on a right. kid's uh, romper suit or something. Yeah, 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 he had a Ronco mm. button here or something, didn't he? <laughs> also, at the very beginning, um, his hair and microphone stance makes him look like the very young Marquis e. Smith, but but <laughs> drunker. He's got the same mm-hmm. sort of, he got the sunken, exhausted eyes. Like yeah. those of an exorcist, um, mm-hmm. but if this record would have been better if he'd done what Marky Smith did when paying tribute to a favourite singer and <laughs> attempted to personify him, like he did. I am Damo Suzuki. This record should yeah. have been I am Elvis Presley. Oh yes, <laughs> imagine how much better that would have been. Yeah, but this is one of those records that seems to make no sense until you realise that he's Dutch. And everything becomes clear, mm. right? No, I, I, <laughs> no, I love the Netherlands up to a point, but me too. They're sort of less natural rockers than the Germans because mm. they don't yeah. have the same enforced independence from their own history and mm. the same congenital lack of self-awareness as individuals. Um, and also, he's the Dutchest-looking man I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, if he had a gingery moustache and a wooden bow tie. It'd be the perfect late 70s Dutch straight. You know what I mean? Like He looks mm. like one of the often overlooked murderous Dutch central defenders who were yes. the bodyguards of total football. Um, yeah. And the trouble with coming from Holland as a, pop, as a minor pop singer is that the only people from Holland that anyone else in the world has ever heard of are all actual genii of one sort or another. So it's mm. like the the line goes like Christian Huygens, Vincent van Gogh, Johan Cruyff, mm. and now this bloke, right? And it's yes. like you you get a lot more cover if you're British or American. It's easier to be of minor interest. Whereas if mm. you're Dutch, it's like there's pressure on you to... Go do, big or go home. Yeah, you've got to do justice to the heroes of the Enlightenment. You know, yes. uh, in in mm, which respect mm. Danny Mirror has to be judged at least a partial failure. Um, uh, and, but what a name, though, Danny Mirror. Yeah, it's like if I put out a it's record a in name. the Netherlands and called myself Dave Telegraph, it's, <laughs> yeah. does he not realise? that? But to me, Danny Mirror sounds like if there was an episode of Roy the Rovers where a pop star got involved, Danny Mirror would be the perfect name. Yeah. yeah if yeah, a yeah. pop star... Uh, was hiding away from his fans in the Crossroads Motel. He would be called Danny Mirror. 
It's too perfect a name for a pop star of the late seventies, to my mind. But the thing is, this look, this record isn't for charity. No, it's you not. Know, it so so what? I'm not I'm not wondering why people buy it or bought it. Rather, it is a, for, for people with Elvis Alzheimer's. Well, but what would you do with it once you got it home? Would you really put it on and listen to it? And then several well, weeks down the line, would you listen to it again? It, well, uh, it, apparently, so near it's this, going up the charts. This is what I cannot fathom that it's going up the charts. Because yeah. it is, it is like I said, a gesture purchase. You buy it in some way to show solidarity with other Elvis fans or something, just to show you mm. show your sadness about this. But then, what the fuck do you do with it? You sit alone in the dark at night, sobbing about Elvis, <laughs> listening to this. I don't get it at all. Yeah, why don't you? Why don't you just listen to Elvis? Yes, exactly. You know, you've, you've probably got a few records by him in your ass if you <laughs> if you bought this. You know, well, that was what worries me. There were probably people out there who didn't own any Elvis records, but fucking own this. What's going on with that? Yeah. I suspect so, a lot yeah, of copies really bought for dads and granddads. Mm, don't you think? Yeah. 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 But, yeah, it, ultimately, he's no Panther Man. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's not <laughs> even a Mai Tai. Uh, he's barely no. even the opus of the 17-year-old Simon Price's imagination. <laughs> <laughs> there were worse um, uh, Elvis sort of... Uh, tribute records in a sense or mm. mournful there's there's one by a guy called skip jackson called the greatest star of all which is mm. which is awful and and t- actually turns up on a kenny everett compilation um, yes the world's worst record yeah most show, of which, which are bullshit. brilliant absolutely yes. it's got tub yes. thumpers kick out the jam so it's got jess conrad's just pull over it's got um it surfing bird talking surfing bird yeah. it's got surfing bird has it also got transfusion yeah. by nervous norvus on it i think it might be yes. a fucking amazing yeah. record <laughs> yeah, leave Kenny ever for now, chaps. Let's return to this because you're right, Neil. I mean, tribute singles to to, uh, to dead singers. That was, you know, it was quite a thing in the fifties and sixties. We haven't had it for a while, and here it is again. And you just it makes you wonder. Oh, come on, Danny! You could have milked this cow for a fucking long, long time. <laughs> as soon as some big pop star snuffs it, get the fucking song oh, out, I mate. Sid vicious. I wouldn't it be great if. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if he'd have come back a couple of years ago with I remember David Bowie <laughs> or Ian, I remember Ian Curtis <laughs> <laughs> So he'd have come on to sing that one in a long overcoat Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean he had a chance soon didn't he because I think Bing Crosby dies later on that year as well Yeah um, So he, he did have a chance but he didn't do it But it, Yeah he should have done it, Mr Trick there Danny Yeah the song itself is terrible as well by the way um, We haven't really talked well, yeah. about the lyrics of it Yes But they're, he, they're, he, they're fucking He'll never set me free No Lord how I love to hear him sing It's yeah. just like oh, my, you know. The thing about Eddie As uh, you know His real name He had mm. the mainstream Dutch pop market sewn up in the 70s, didn't he? He was like a producer and a, he did a bit of everything. Mm, yeah. Um, and it's so it was so easy then to become a big fish in a small pond and make a great mm. living from being the only person in your small market who bothered to do it, right? Who could... Mm. Yeah, the Johnny Halliday. Yeah, mm. em- yeah, yeah. Because people wanted to embrace something local. You know, it's like how the whole world yeah. watches American pornography, but really they would like to see mm. people from their own country doing it. You know, it's like that. <laughs> and even if the standard is a bit lower, it's, it's, <laughs> it still make up, makes up for it. 
there's a sort of a, a, an alternate history of pop there. If you go around the smaller countries of the world, you can find somebody in yeah. every country who did that and made a million out of it. Mm. In this case, uh, yeah. the big lad in the windmill. So the following week, I remember Elvis Presley jumped four places to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, We Wish You Merry Christmas, an original-ish song sung in an Elvis style, failed to chart here and he never bothered the UK Top 40 again. However, in 1981, he hooked up with the Jordanaires, Elvis's original backing singers, for a 50-track LP of Elvis tunes. And he won the defamation lawsuit against Hitkrant magazine for the deadly <laughs> spanking accusation. <laughs> Good on him. He's uh, he's pretty much bankrupt now, though. He uh, spent all his money on the uh, on the one arm bandits. Oh, what? Really? I, I think he's just waiting for Shaking Stevens to snuff it. Isn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> he's just a golden memory. Danny Mirror. And uh, I remember Elvis Presley. Right, it's now join in with Top of the Pops and Legs and Company time. Up to the loft, get your Christmas decorations out and start hurling yourself around. Edmunds advises us to get our Christmas decorations out which people in 1977 wouldn't have done until the beginning of December at the very earliest because they were proper, unlike our cunts today. And introduces From Here to Eternity by Giorgio Moroder, or, as he's known here, Giorgio. Born in South Tyrol, Italy, in 1940, Giorgio Moroder started as a bassist in the late 60s in West Berlin, releasing the singles Blah Blah Diddler, Moody Trude and a cover of Manamana. Uh, and an LP called That's Bubblegum, That's Giorgio. He also had a regional hit with Son of My Father, which was covered and turned into a UK number one by Chicory Tip in 1972. By this time, he'd moved into songwriting and producing and hit the jackpot when he linked up with Donna Summer in 1975 and released Love to Love You Baby, which got to number four in the UK in February of 1976. Three months previous to this episode, Maroda and Summer stayed at number one for four weeks with I Feel Love, which has obviously encouraged Giorgio to give his solo career another go. It's up this week from number 30 to number 25, and it's this week's showcase for Legs and Co. And fucking hell, it's the future. It's amazing, isn't it? It's ridiculous. I was watching this. First time I watched this episode in preparation for this, I'm kind of like fart-arsing about doing other things, and suddenly I turned round and, you know, copped an earful of it, and I thought... Fuck's sake, what, what the fucking hell are the Pet Shop Boys doing on top of the Pops in 1977? Oh, absolutely. It stops you in your tracks. Yeah. It, it, within about 10 seconds of it, you're hearing things that you can actually hear now in yes. current pop music. Um, I don't know whether that's an indictment of how electronic dance hasn't always been interesting in finding a way beyond, beyond this, or just a testament to how ahead of his time 
Moroda was. I mean, yeah. there's another electronic record in this chart, Space yeah. Magic Fly, which yeah. shows how instruments, electronic instruments, when they're put in the hands of musicians, they don't necessarily sound revolutionary. No. Magic Fly sh- sounds like a Shadows instrumental played yes. on synths. Yes. This sounds like the future because electronics seem to have actually had an effect on the on the innards and the structure of the music it's mm. a fucking amazing record like it's been teleported back from the early 80s yeah, um, it's without like house music isn't it yeah yeah without the big yeah, it's ego- like acid house 10 years early and already better uh, yeah. absolutely i mean another thing of course that it reminds you of in retrospect is that the rhythmic undertow of it massively reminds me of robots by Kraftwerk. Mm. but maroda is nothing like Kraftwerk. he's for me, he's like an electronic Jeff Lynne or mm. Roy Wood. He's more like that. Um, it's an amazing performance as well, I think. This is burned into my memory, like an arm across a window. This has the ability, this performance by, by um, the, the dance troupe, to burn itself into your memory, mm. precisely because it's so abstract. Yeah. But, but, but listening to this, yeah, I, 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 my jaw dropped because this is so, so um, ahead of its time. Yeah, because remember Pop Craze Youngsters, when Legs and Co are on and we talk about the song first, it's a fucking good song. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and as a kid, I mean, as a kid hearing this, and I remember hearing things like this and hearing things like Kraftwerk early on, there, there was never, you know, you know, musicians throughout the world were, were, were doing their keep music live bullshit. Mm. Um, as a kid, there was never any problem with electronic music because no. it was blatantly apparent that machines did things better. Yeah. You sensed as a kid the precision of it and you loved that. Mm. Um you know, there's something deeply, deeply satisfying about the precision of this record. And I think any kid, as opposed to grown-up musician, would immediately respond to this music because it's got, it fulfills that function. It's incredibly satisfying and incredibly, well, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, this record begins and it's like everything else on the show has melted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like everything else sounds fiddly and old-fashioned and over-elaborate and full of bullshit. What this reminds me of, it's like an electronic music equivalent of Bo Diddley or Link Ray, Mm. where it's not pioneering in the sense of having invented the form, but pioneering in the way that it finds a new, fresh simplicity and power and minimalistic weirdness Mm. and presents that with such force and flash. It becomes almost commercial and in the sense that it's like a mother load you can take this and draw out so many different possibilities and variations without losing the fundamental appeal yeah um and i don't know i always get the impression that now much as i love the the really high-tech modern pop records it feels like music technology has slightly decreased the space of mm. popular music mm. it's created a sort of an unnatural architecture um which most modern pop records and specifically most modern black pop records which as is so often the case are currently the most forward looking all seem to have in common it's like the old-fashioned acoustic space has gone mm. but so has any comprehensible 3d effect mm. like everything's mm. so tight and mangled which is great but in a way, there's something even more futuristic about this because it's so wide open and uh, celestial without sounding new agey or, or sort of falsely soothing. Mm. It's, like it's authentically psychedelic in that it gives you a sense of being part of something much bigger than yourself mm. without that feeling like a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a natural thing. 
um, that at the same time makes you intensely aware of small detail. Mm. Um, this is, uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. And the visual presentation as well. Well, yes. You've got to say Legs & Co have risen to the challenge here, haven't oh, they? Yeah, absolutely. And all they're doing is just kind of like poncing about with some tassels. Yeah, it's like the opening titles of a Bond film that was made entirely mm. on location in Malden. Um, <laughs> but it's great. And it, this might be one of the last examples of a proper visual freakout on mainstream television, like an analogue visual freak on mainstream television. It's something you used to see a lot more in the days when TV visual effects were primitive uh, because now Mm -hmm. they can do anything. There's this terrible sort of good taste where you don't want to overdo it. Uh, You don't want Mm. to make it look vulgar. Whereas in those days, you could only do a few things and to do it, (coughs) you basically had to break or mistreat the equipment. Um, So you had to go all out or nothing. So you get these fantastically gross colour effects and flashing lights like in Doctor Who uh, like a this fantastically intense television and this is a great example Uh, and one of the last because soon it was all uh, Quantel paint box and Mirage all these sort of early digital things where all they would do would be put someone in a box and whiz them around the screen you know this is Mm. vastly superior and we're seeing examples of this on Top of the Pops already aren't we this is kind of like rainbow line of things yeah Yeah, that opens and closes and stuff but I mean the the actual performance is essentially legs and co in silhouette in tasselly miniskirts waving more tassels on a stick uh, and in the background is is close-ups of them it's it's quite arresting, it's isn't it? It's very arresting. And it's kind of, I think it benefits from... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Perhaps not having had enough time to get it right, in a way. Um, mm. It's kind of reminiscent, remember the 70 episode, 1970 episode, where they have these weird experimental films almost yeah. Um, yeah. for the tracks. And it's like that. You sense they got the footage, they had to get it together. They did, yeah. but it's precisely the kind of, not rush nature of it, but, but yeah, the abstract nature of it that makes it really, really unforgettable. It really burns itself into your, into your consciousness. And I think, I think when I hear this song in the future, because I'm definitely going to invest the Maroda solo album this comes from um yeah. you know I, I i will be visualizing this it, it it's odd i didn't you know when you hear that you're going to do an episode from 77 i'm sure all mm. of us expected certain things and yeah. you know the official line is the punk revolution had torn a hole in the blah 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 whatever there's yeah. nothing of that 
The, you know, the yeah. whole episode could really be for many of the preceding years or any of the next two years. There's Black Pop looking yeah. forward, at least, to ex- you know express the president. There's quite a lot of mi- white morbidity and wrestling with the past. But the true revolution is going to come in a few years. And it's only Giorgio Moroder, who's the only prophet on this episode, really, yes. uh, uh, of the future. Definitely. This is essentially the top of the pops version of the uh, the Vrillen broadcast that was on Southern TV a month later, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, yeah. It really is. For people who don't know that, uh, Southern TV one Saturday afternoon, uh, the signal got jammed and someone spoke a load of um, intergalactic bollocks over a over a, a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, pretending to be a message from uh, a. A space alien overlord watching our yeah. planet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the best thing of all about this is that it's got an edge to it, right? There's something mechanical and raw and sexy about it, like the record. Mm. Um, yeah. Like a crap technology yeah. pushed to the limit. So what you get is genuinely disorientating and mentally stimulating. Yeah. Mm. Dads are going to be pissed off, though, because they don't get to see much of Oak, do they? <laughs> also, the the disco sucks. People are not going to be impressed by this. I mean, they yeah, were angry it. enough about the stuff that was recognisably mm. song based. Whereas um, mm. <laughs> this, you you would be able to attract fifty thousand men in uh, egg stained hockey shirts on <laughs> on on lewds and fortified <laughs> wine to drive their Subarus in a convoy up to the sports stadium with a bag of hammers in the trunk, right? <laughs> Making a day of it, like someone roasting a hog on a propane stove. And uh, <laughs> some guy who says he's George Lincoln Rockwell's cousin signing autographs at a trestle table. Uh, you can picture it now. Yeah. I think it can't be stressed enough how much... Uh, Legs & Co are, are kind of... Um, that that People are a bit piss takey about legs and co yeah but when they get it right yeah they can absolutely accentuate and amplify the power of a record and, yes. and i think on this they really really do yeah um, it's, it, i love the way their movements that they can but that they've listened to this record and yeah. they understand it's it, it's the rub between its fluidity and it's kind of it's mechanistic things yeah that make it work so their moves are precisely like that they're both fluid but also also kind of um you know rigid as well and, and yeah. it's perfect performance it's a really good co- uh, coalescing of, of sound and, and and the dancing yeah i've got to say this is the best legs and co performance we've we've seen so far yeah i would say so yeah 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 well done legs and co i was listening to a compilation of uh giorgio moroder's uh, early stuff and various oddities uh which i dug out um and like loads of it is sort of crap cheapo funk you know and yeah. really mediocre but every now and again you get something really amazing like uh uh boy on the ball by tracy dean which is like it's like an attempt to do something like this with conventional in- instrumentation you know but mm. you listen to it and there's no sense of this being a visionary in waiting you know what i mean yeah it's like mm, one day yeah. he just got the gear set up and did something and thought fucking hell that sounds amazing and then just mm. went down that road. And, you know, it was like uh, suddenly everything went from black and white into colour. I, I, I still count it as a sort of badge of national pride that I, that I feel love only got to number one in Britain. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the following week from here to eternity jumped four places to number 21 and would get as high as number 16. The follow-up 
Utopia, me Giorgio, failed to chart anywhere, and he knocked the singing career on the head to concentrate on the soundtracks to Midnight Express, Battlestar Galactica, and American Gigolo. Those outfits made you concentrate on what was happening. Uh, Hardy Amy's tells me everyone's going to be wearing those. What wondrous stories. Yes. Edmonds is strangely bemused by Legs and Co's rig out and then tries to be a bit too clever with the introduction to the next song, Wondrous Stories by Yes. Yeah, it's horrible because he does one of those hacky BBC continuity announcer introductions. Like, you know, where they used to say, like, and now it's time to pay a visit to Albert Square and catch up with the EastEnders. Or uh, <laughs> now on BBC One, we take a trip to Ramsey Street to pay a visit on those. Neighbours. He does one of those. Oh, it's just the cringe. The cringe. Formed in London in 1968, Yes were one of the foremost progressive rock bands of the early 70s who had already scored seven top ten LPs but had left no impression on the UK singles chart. The band went on hiatus in the mid-70s so they could all record solo albums. Fucking hell and came back together in early 1977 to record their latest LP, Going for the One in Montreux. Seen as a backing away from the mad shit they were coming out with, and a veer towards a more accessible sound, it spent two weeks at number one on the UK LP chart in August of this year. This is the first single from that LP, written by singer John Anderson, and according to Wikipedia, it's about a lovely doss he had one day in Montreux. It's the first ever dent Yes have made in the singles charts, and it's up this week from number 16 to number 7. As they're playing a gig in Kansas City tonight, we're treated to their first ever promotional film for a record in a concert situation. And fucking hell, all of a sudden, we are dragged back into the mid-70s. Completely. Uh. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, who? The, I would ask who the fuck buys this, but I sort of know who buys yes. this. Um, from the actual title onwards, it kind of annoys me. Yeah. Um, Wonderous. <laughs> yeah, Wondrous. Yeah. That bugs the fuck out of me. So that's like a deliberately medieval spelling. Yeah. Um, I guess Why it don't is... Why call it Wondrous Storiae's then? <laughs> Fucking have done with it. As a, as a pop song, it kind of fails for me. As yeah. a song that is catchy and hasn't got 20 different sections in 20 different time signatures, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a progression for, for Yes. But I, uh, uh, there's one thing that snags me with Yes and, and prevents my my exploration of them mm. and that's Wakeman I've got to say I'm right. sorry um, I mean <sighs> is there anything he's ever done that isn't shit he's kind of like mm. a great musician inverted commas who's up there for me as somebody I don't know I just can't stand hearing him he always seems to play widdly weak yes so everything they're wearing on this um, video just makes mm. them look like a suicide cult but what Wakeman <laughs> in Wakeman in particular, that's that thing of making even the sort of silkiest satiny stuff look shit. And he's got all the grace yeah. and glamour of, of Bernard Breslau in a dress, basically. Yes, so, yes, yes. I wasn't, I wasn't massively into this, I've got to say. Well, what Wakeman would wave at 
St. Peter is the piano on Life on Mars by David Bowie, which is his ah, his greatest yes. moment. But That's yeah, true. I have what I've always hated is the way you're meant to think that Rick Waitman was sort of all right because he's quite yeah. clubbable and down to earth, and he had a lager yeah, and, and he had a curry on his yeah to gig once. yeah 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 while he was making this fucking fairy tale shitbag music but i say that's worse <laughs> i say have the courage of your convictions and at least have the decency to float around being ethereal and idiotic and fucking own it you know what i mean like in that respect even donovan is preferable even even the the <laughs> 1972 film version of the pied piper with donovan in the title role is preferable to this half measure to this uh, vindaloo breathed beery medievalism <laughs> of Rick Waitman wearing a pointed hat and checking his Paul's coupon. Fucking bellend. <laughs> Hate him. But I, yeah, that medievalism is so fucking yes. aggravating. Like the, the pretty main liege uh, flipping your hands around yeah. in little circles <laughs> while curtsy. There's people playing little trumpets with triangular flags hanging off the bottom, you know. And, uh, yeah. But with no sense of historical weight, like you get with uh, <laughs> early Fairport Convention or or even Steel Ice Band, right? You don't feel mm, the yeah. past pressing down on these people. Um, it's, it's a bit Clopper Castle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are not being haunted and invaded by the past, right? It's it's mm. more like one of those medieval banquets where sales consultants eat chicken legs <laughs> and throw the bones over there shoulder yeah and all the serving wenches have got those crosses on the front of their blouses so to make their tits stick out even more yeah i know somebody who works as a serving wench at oh. coom abbey near cov and she posted a photo of herself doing one of these meals and she had one of them fucking you know in uh mic things like <laughs> janet jackson it really ruined the fucking mood <laughs> oh you nasty knave <laughs> <laughs> the terrible thing is you speak honestly about yes, and you sound like you're following that sort of creaky old consensus, you know. Yeah. But in fact, that creaky old consensus is a rare example of the hive mind of the music business getting something unequivocally right, albeit yeah. for the wrong reasons. Um, yeah. And it's mind-boggling to think that otherwise intelligent people would have uh, considered this to be objectively good music compared to that Giorgio Moroder trash or the, uh, yeah. you know, the pop shit of the emotions, is that the, the sheer nerve to put aside uh, the great rockers of the past and claim to have progressed as though these people, like these yeah. upper-middle-class yeah. yeah, yeah. British public school products who belonged in the foreign office or, you know, on the <laughs> 810 into Victoria in fucking bowler hats, as though they knew better... Um, yeah. It's this terrible thing with English prog, which, they, okay, it's good to have a desire to expand and extend rock music, but they didn't mm. understand the form and they didn't trust the form. So you listen to mm. someone like Can and they take brutal rock and roll and they unfold it or or coax it open like a, like a bud coming into flower. Whereas people like yeah. Yes just bolt on a load of ornamentation and sort of oh, yeah. tokens that, that flown in from classical music or jazz. And it's like those people who put reindeer horns on their dog and make it walk around 
and film it and put it on YouTube. It's like doing that and then calling that a progression. Like you plebs with your ordinary dogs. Fido has progressed far beyond you. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Stooges are walking a wolf on a lead. And Roxy Music have got a Dalmatian that can write novels. You know what I mean? It's completely the wrong approach. It's humiliating to the subject and ultimately an embarrassment for the perpetrators. And there's a a sort of gross and debased way in which this is quite a pleasant-sounding record. Um, Mm. The horror is the way it all comes together. And something which should, should sound airy and dreamy is so full of its stupid self that it just sounds like stodge. And what it reminds me of is a cosmic Mumford and Sons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, it really is. Meow. Mm. I mean, this is the thing with Yes and, and other bands of, of their rope. To, to my generation, we, we've, we've, we've avoided it pretty much. Most of us have anyway. And that's because at the age of nine, this wasn't grown-up music. It was teacher music. Uh, it's the sort of thing that that would be played while you're <laughs> filing into assembly to be told that the football team's lost again, but they had a good try. Uh, a, a, another reminder that you're not allowed to play Dobby off ground round the bins near the back of the canteen, and then we're going to play you never talk to strangers. Let's listen to wondrous stories again. Yeah, yeah I remember we had to file in once to fanfare for the common man by ELP. Oh. Yeah. It was, oh. Yeah, we had one teacher who placed salt with camel all the time, or as they were known at the time, camel. <laughs> and he'd, and he'd oh. say, "Oh, that was a song by Camel. You ought to listen to them. It's better yeah. than Show Waddy Waddy or whatever you listen to." We were like, "Fuck <laughs> off!" Yeah, Show Waddy Waddy a skill. This is boring. <laughs> <laughs> I should say, actually, right? Although they didn't have hits, Yes did put singles out all through the 70s. Um, mm. They weren't one of those bands that thought it was beneath them. They were right yeah. slags, which it was relatively healthy, I think. I mean, the the, mm. the obviously the primary sin of prog rock is thinking that to be the idiot little brother of classical music is more progressive mm. than the emancipatory act of mistreating musical instruments and torturing machinery to create... Mm. Uh, vital works of popular culture but um, at least they recognise that pop singles could have value even if they miscalculated their relative worth Mm. anything else to say about this appalling confection I wonder with yes who was the sort of dominant person in the band Mm. were they all equally sort of not stupid but they were (laughs) equally committed to this because I wonder if John Anderson just kind of wanted to write pretty songs and um, um, Steve Howe just wanted to play some guitar I I feel Rick just wanted a chorus well, no, but this is it. I feel that Wakeman drives it. Yes. I feel that I feel that Wakeman drives the pomposity of it, and 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 that's probably my major problem with this band. You know, I'm just in general dubious about musicians who are invited um, to be the star in a reasonably priced car on Top Gear with mm. regularity, and he's one of them. Mm. The the only musical contribution to this record that I quite like is. Uh, uh, Chris Squire's bass playing, which is genuinely imaginative without being mm. too fancy. Um, mm. And that's really unusual because usually the, the, 
the over-elaborate bass playing and drumming is what really kills his... It's like the only British prog or prog-related band that I like is Pink Floyd, up to about 1977 when Roger Waters strangled the life out of them because uh, the bass player and drummer were by far the worst musicians in that band. So there's a sort of primitive undertow. So you listen to, to Pink Floyd and they sound like a garage band floating in space, which is totally different um, to when everybody in the group is playing 19 to the dozen and showing off simultaneously. So, yeah, yeah I just wonder if, um, if you'd put Chris Squire in a good band if he might actually have improved them because I don't think yeah. that's something you can say about any other member of Yes. So the following week, Wondrous Stories dropped seven places to number 14. <laughs> the follow-up, Going for the One, got to number 24 in December of this year and they would never penetrate the top 20 again. I always thought Owner of a Lonely Heart was a big hit in the 80s and it wasn't. It was only in the high 30s. Really? Yeah. Okay, that surprises me as well. Yes, and some of those wondrous stories. Here's a lovely lady. She's got a brand new single, Denise Williams and Baby Baby, My Love. Oh, it's just all for you, so she says. Indiana in 1950, Denise Williams was a medical student who sang in clubs on the side, who eventually dropped out of college and spent the late 60s recording a variety of tracks, some of which were picked up on by the Northern Soul community. In the early 70s, she became part of Wonder Love, Stevie Wonder's backing singers, but in 1975, she signed to CBS as a solo artist and linked up with Maurice Wright of Earth, Wind and Fire and his producer Charles Stepney. The first single from this collaboration, Free, got to number one in the UK for two weeks in May of this year. This is the follow-up to That's What Friends Are For, which got to number eight in August of this year, is the first release from the new LP Songbirds and is not in the charts yet. Well, chaps, the eternal battles of the mid-70s, Punks versus Ted's, the MPLA versus the Portuguese Army, the Grunwick Strikers versus the Police, and Black Singers versus the BBC Orchestra. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly yes, what this clip is all about. Mm, I mean, we've seen, we've seen what you know, we've seen our Confederates and, and presumably mates, the emotions being given the full-on Soul Train treatment, and mm. poor Denise, she's stuck here. Oh god! They're pissed out of their face, aren't they? The BBC orchestra. <laughs> if you stood so in front of those trumpets, you would get pissed. <laughs> Just breathing that air. These fucking. I mean, sats. I quite, I quite, 
I quite like the bit of the horribly gnarly bit of feedback on the intro to this. Um, yeah, that she almost laughs at. But 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 from then on, yes. the BBC Orchestra they just badly let her down. The 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 crucial mm. thing about this record, I mean, I mean, I personally I prefer Free. Free's yes. a fucking Free's a, a great song, song, great song. And off this album that this is from, Songbird Time would have actually been a better release. I think the first really? track on it because it's well, it's like it's basically a great rip off of. Shooting Star by Earth, Wind and Fire. That's all ah, it is. But, it, okay. but it's a fantastic tune. But on this, the crucial hookup between the bass and the kick drum that gives the original its kind of propulsion mm. is gone. Because because they're, they're, they've had five pints of heavy or something. Yes. Um, <laughs> she sees it through quite gamely in front of a mainly sort of smirking audience. But yeah, she's been badly, badly let down by the BBC orchestra here. And if Jonathan Cohen is part of this, he should be ashamed of himself. <laughs> The the terrible thing is she's in great voice as well, but mm. there's a that honking feedback at the start, and then the drums coming in, it throws her off, and she never quite recovers. And yeah. you, she doesn't, do, you know, on the record, there's those amazing high notes at the end where she really goes for it. Mm-hmm. She doesn't do it on this performance mm. because I don't think she trusts the musicians. Um, <laughs> it's fair to say that they don't really capture the funky snap of this record the, <laughs> yeah. the the moment you know this is going horribly wrong um on the record there's a big brass blast after the first line like it's she sings lovely, the first line mm-hmm. yeah and there's a sort of clip it's like a clipped textural detail of this kind of brass uh blast and here it sounds like a ruddy-faced bank manager blowing off after a lunch of piccalilli <laughs> and worthington e it's fucking horrendous. And you just see something die on her face at that moment. Yeah. Um, mm. And it's like, yeah, it's like she's playing the night out in Birmingham for a load of chicken in a basket eaters. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. with this, yeah. this horrible sound. Um, and she's what sums it up as well. The girl in the Jubilee hat is right at the yeah. front for this performance too and her <laughs> dancing is a sight to see it she doesn't look like she's moving to the beat she looks like she's trying to stand upright on a moving tube train without holding on to anything it's the, the, <laughs> the worst attempt to dance to a soul record i've ever seen in my life what's more uh denise williams has to sing in front of a load of struts holding up a rickety wooden platform with some drums and flight cases stuffed down the side, which is, I would say, a a lapse of design and direction that I don't think you'd have got on Soul Train. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My heart This is Soul Emergency Train Service, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Soul Train. Soul Rail Replacement Service. It's a double-decker bus to take you to Skegness for five hours. My heart breaks for her because, I mean, she's still young. When you see people like the Drifters on Wheel Tappers and Shunters and that, and they're playing with, like, backing bands... Yes. Um... You know they're old stages, and that that you know they played the Chitlin Circuit, etc. Yeah, they they, they work around, around it. it, but but Denise, I feel really sorry for her because this is possibly. I mean, I know she's had the hit with Free; it's got to number one. This is her next potential hit, mm. and this is the most important yes. pop show in the country. And you know, it's almost sabotage. In a way, I'm glad history. that this is such a dog's breakfast because, much as I love the actual record, there's a problem with trying to talk or write about this kind of 70s soul this uh the commercial 
romantic popular stuff uh, which is that it doesn't really lend itself to being written about unlike you know art rock or p-funk mm. or dub or post-punk or any of these musics that sound like they involved a lot of artistic choices rather than just a moment's inspiration because when you talk or write about music the easiest thing and the most natural thing to do is to write and talk about the artistic choices on the record and the great thing about this record and a lot of other records like it is that it sounds so natural and effortless that it's hard to see where those choices were despite the fact that it is the product of very well-practiced musicians and considered songwriting and a meticulous production the effect is so spontaneous Mm. and straightforward um and having to hear this sort of two Ronnie's version instead uh, sort of dug, <laughs> dug me out of a hole yeah. in that respect. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If, if, she, if she had just come on a mind to the original, we'd have very little to say about it, to be yeah. honest with you, because it's just a... Yeah. We'd just Apart say, from what a, what a decent song it exactly, is. Exactly, and that'd be it. But, um, yeah. yeah. So, five weeks later, Baby Baby My Love's All For You entered the chart at number 45 and would only get as high as number 32. Her next bit of chart action came in the spring of 1978 when she teamed up with Johnny Mathis and got Too Much, Too Little, Too Late, which sounds like the BBC Orchestra's performance, to number three. In 1980, she started veering towards a gospel route, but she'd have one more massive hit when Let's Hear It For The Boy got to number two for two weeks in June of 1984. Oh, and the BBC Orchestra are now based in the same studio complex as Jeremy Kyle. (laughs) Which I love, because you can always see people rowing outside their studio. It's fucking great, man. I just imagine these white-haired violinists just screeching to a halt with their mouths hanging out as people are fucking having a go at each other and talking about using Toffee Crisp rappers as Johnnies. (laughs) Gorgeous lady with a beautiful voice and a very beautiful song. That's Denise Williams. Here are the Stranglers and no more Eros, I think. Whatever happened to all of the heroes, all the Shakespeare's. Edmonds drops an especially shitty joke before introducing No More Heroes by The Stranglers. No more ear rolls, but one massive arsehole. (laughs) We've already discussed The Stranglers in Chart Music 11, so we'll just say that this is the first release from the new LP No More Heroes. It's the follow-up to Something Better Change, which got to number 9 in August of this year, and it's up this week from number 20 to number 13. Now... Bit of a mystery here, chaps, because immediately we see Hugh Cornwell waving about and then throwing what appears to be a, a copy of the NME, I suppose, off the stage, which makes Jean-Jacques Brunel stop miming to retrieve it so he can wave it about and lob it again. Now, now, what is this about? Because first time I saw it, I thought they were just waving it about and chucking it. But then, you know, I noticed there was all this smoke and I thought, oh, fucking hell, I have to set fire to it. And... Um, 
they've started fretting that he's going to get out of control. And, you know, that's not very punky to me, is it? So what, what is going Yeah, on? I think they've tried to set fire to it, uh, presumably to show that they don't take no shit from the critics, man. Uh, but they just haven't done it very well. And it's just smoky. Also, this clip's a repeat. It's from the previous week. Uh, so if you look, they play the start of the song over Edmund's horrible face when he's doing the intro. And you only go to the clip a few seconds late. So they might have tried to cut that bit out, um, you know, in case any kids watching tried to set fire to their mum or something. Well, according to the BBC <laughs> website, it says that they were trying to waft away some dry ice that was on stage, but... Yeah, that's what I thought when I first saw it, but I don't think it is. First of all, because it's only on that one side of the stage. Uh, and secondly, Top of the Pops wasn't using dry ice in this period, was it? You don't see it with anyone else. Um, and I don't think they'd have made an exception for this bunch of scrotes. Yeah, there you go then. They're... Mystery solved. Well, to be honest with you, Al, before we talk about the Stranglers, I kind of want to say, what the fuck is up with Noel Edmonds's between song announcements? It's awful, um, isn't it? They're awful, and he's doing that. I, I, I see the influence of, of Everett here again. Um, it's that yes, voice that definitely. Kenny Everett used to do to kind of mock the BBC, that RP kind of talking. He's yeah. doing it for real in a way, but it's it's all falling flat. It, 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 you know, for somebody who prides himself on his supposed competence and brilliance and everything, all the rest of it, he makes a dog's breakfast of this presentation. Yeah, he's, on this he's, yeah. he's rubbish. Every link, every link. Every link. It's just a yeah. failed, flat, damp squib. It's, you know, yeah. I don't get it at all. Yeah, it makes you hanker for Tony Blackburn, eh? <laughs> Although I think there's a bit of subtle editorialising here. I think there's a bit of implied disapproval when yes. he says mm. uh, that was a gorgeous lady with a beautiful voice and a very beautiful song. Now here are the Stranglers. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, the, the thing about Edmonds is, is that he he's now in that position at the BBC where he, he appears to be above everything, and he's deigned to appear on top of the pops, mm. and he obviously doesn't give a fuck about the music. And particularly this kind of music, and it's it's all about being a vehicle for him, and you know that never works. I mean, no. Pete, you have people like Peter Powell, who you know whatever you think about him and his you know in his presentation technique, he, he appears to give a fuck about mm. the music. Mm. Yeah, there's just no generosity in Edmonds. It's all private gags yeah. um, that aren't funny. You know, obviously. Um, yeah. So yeah, that really that re- that really annoyed me. Actually, um, is it Jean-Jacques Bernal who throws the enemy on the floor at the um, end? Yes. Yeah, that that. I mean, is that going to register with anyone beyond about two hundred people watching this show? Is anyone going to know what they're? You know, there are things I like about the Stranglers. Don't get me wrong. I, mm. I like their kind of oddity in a way. The fact mm. that even though they were tied in with punk, you know, they've got tashes and beards and they've got that keyboard sound. And I've always yeah. loved their bass sound. Yeah. Um, they, they get the bass sounding fantastic but really this is probably one of my least favourite Strangler songs no oh really heroes. yeah um, you know the lyrics now um, don't exactly annoy me I mean it, what, what it reminds me of is how little you care about lyrics when you're a kid um, mm. These these names that they're talking about, Leon Trotsky, etc., obviously meant nothing to me. No, um, nor me. I would not have known any of those people mentioned at the time. Um, I just thought they'd be their mates in the pub or something. <laughs> well, lyrics when you're a kid just have a continuum with the music. They yeah. they don't really you don't really pull them out. I don't think in isolation and kind of analyze them in any way. Mm. But really, this is just a kind of I don't know. It's it's just a kind of rougher pub rock, but not as tough as metal. It's kind of for yeah. me. It's it's one of my least favorite Strangler songs in a way. There's there's Strangler songs on the album 
albums that I love. And they're probably the ones that when, you know, they're at their most unpleasant in a way. Yeah. They're, they're least co-optable by punk. Things like London Lady, and they're probably quite misogynistic songs, but um, mm. things like that, they just have a groove. And, the, and, and it's the bass sound for me. It's the bass sound for me that, that really that really makes me love The Stranglers. But this is not one of my favourites. Um, and a weird performance as well, in terms of the way that the BBC have done it, is that they've included this massive middle section with the keyboard solo, and then yeah. cut it when he comes back for the um, for, for, for the the final verses, so you don't hear anything towards the end of the record. It's a bit of an odd one. I'll pass on this one. I prefer other Strangler songs, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, before Taylor comes in, I've got to say that I was a, a bit offended by this at the time, the fact that there were no more heroes anymore, because I used to think, well, well, where does that put Brian Clough and, and Judge Dredd <laughs> and Chris Bonington and people like that? <laughs> what, what are you saying, Stranglers? All I've got written there is uglier than a string bag of snouts and arseholes. <laughs> and the programme probably did need a blast of foul air at this point yes. but even so look at these fuckers <laughs> scaly with yesterday's perspiration mm. um, I don't know do you think the Stranglers were slightly narked that already they were seen as the acceptable face of punk mm. because <laughs> well, th- this is pretty much the only punk content yeah. in the whole show yeah. uh, it would have been seen as punk anyway by most of the people watching it including myself yeah, they were older and more classic rock and they could play and they didn't sound weird. And they didn't give a fuck in the sense that they were quite happy to go on TV and, you know, censor the swearing and the lyrics so it could be played on the radio and all that sort of stuff. So they seemed to be the band that were allowed in to do the yeah. funny scowling thing and have a horrible name and wear black and be anti-social. It's like so yeah. that box could be ticked, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't hold it against them and they were just being a pop group but they did it at a time when that willingness to play the game was sort of seen to clash with that sleazeball image you know and I don't know how they would have felt about that at the time or whether they would just have cackled all the way to the bank if they were going to get some punk on this episode it would have been perhaps far more interesting to get the adverts on or something like that they're in the charts Um, I think they're going down though yeah, I mean, what punk-ish singles you can see, things like The Rods and things like The Stranglers, show just how, for an awful lot of us, punk just meant rougher rock and roll by the rough boys. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it, 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 it's not it's not a playing with the structure of, of songs or anything. It's just kind of a bit gnarlier than, mm. than, than, than other music. That's yeah. all. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 punk or punkish element in the charts is uh, this week is com- complete control by the Clash, which is a new entry at number twenty eight. Gary Gilmore's Eyes has dropped down from number twenty three to number twenty six, and Rods do anything you want to do, or Eddie and the Hot Rods, as they're mm-hmm. better known as, uh, down from number fifteen to number eighteen. So this is the only this is the only punkish thing that could have been played this week but I mean I, 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 I hate the word that people use these days about curators of culture as it were but it, mm. the, the, the fact is the music press felt they were part of punk and felt they were an important part of it and yeah. consequently its importance has been grotesquely overinflated ever since yeah. not, and I'm not just talking about record sales I, I just you know looking at this chart 
in a dispassionate way, you really realise that punk for most of us meant, yeah, a bit of gobbing, a bit of sort of shouting and mm. oyishness, and that's all it meant. It didn't yeah. mean it, it didn't mean revolution. It just yeah. meant that a few bands got popular who, like Taylor said, looked like they didn't wash. Talking of which, Boomtown Rats have gone down one place to number fifteen. So yeah. there you go, <laughs> Neil. Yeah. Would you eat a sandwich made by the Stranglers? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely fucking no. Can you imagine not. it? You imagine like <laughs> making this sandwich with the fag hanging out there, like fag ash dropping into the margarine yeah. and just spreading it in, you know, yeah, like yeah, old yeah. man steptoe, like six different yeah. kinds of fecal bacteria under their fingernails. <laughs> it would be, it'd be, be white bread. It would be like Mother's Pride, like that real cheap stuff, like yeah. window putty. Uh, it would. It would be fucking horrible. Shippen's fish paste. Uh, and <laughs> exactly. made on a, made not on a breadboard, but directly on a kitchen worktop that's oh, like yes. mice, mice scurrying all over. Yeah. Yeah. Also, because yeah. you're a journalist, they'd have done a cum in it. Um, yes. Because you deserve <laughs> yeah. it. No, I ate, I ate a kebab batch, right? With batch is what we call um, bread rolls around here. Um, I ate a kebab batch from a chippy and cough about six years ago. I don't know why I ordered it. Um, kebab meat in a bun. And uh, halfway through eating it, found fingernail. And that oh, is how, lovely. Yes, that is how repulsive a sandwich from the Stranglers would be, I think. Oh. Oh. All right, all right then, Neil. Let's take it one stage further, right? Would you eat a pre-wrapped sandwich that was given to you by the Stranglers? No. No, and you because, looked at it, and you looked at it, and it wasn't tampered with it with any in any way. No holes in it. The the date's still good. Yeah, but it might have been in their pocket or something. Yeah, this is it. This or is in it. the worst smelling van in rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I wouldn't actually. Because yeah, it would have been near them. I mean, it's, it's kind of like it. It's kind of like you know, if you had a hermetically sealed sandwich. Mm. Would you eat it if I put it for like twenty seconds in a latrine at a festival? No, well, no, there you go. There and, you and go. that's what it'd be like getting a sandwich off the Stranglers. Yeah, the Stranglers have a, a special kind of filth that can penetrate cellophane. <laughs> the pig pens of pot. Yeah. So the following week, no more heroes jumped four places to number nine and would eventually get to number eight. The follow-up, five minutes got to number 11 in February of 1978 and they'd have to wait for four years before making the top 10 again. Oh, and in 1995, the band settled out of court with Elastica when they accused them of nicking this song for their single, Waking Up. And now we move on to the hard part of the programme. How do you pronounce the next name band? Baccarat. You reckon Baccarat? What do you reckon? Baccarat. Baccarat. I thought it was the Osmonds, myself. Chaps, I've just had a flash of fucking genius. How about this? Let me lay this out for you, right? Taylor, yeah. you go off and you jot down the 16 scabbiest bands you can think of, right? <laughs> right? And you rank them from 1 to 16. Yeah. And we form a bracket. 
We all come back together at some point. We put to Neil which of the bands he would not have a sandwich of. (laughs) And we go through a knockout phase. And we do it as a bonus series of podcasts for the Pulp Craze Youngsters on Patreon. How's about that? I think that's a great idea. (laughs) Let's settle this once and for all. Because you'll be yeah. su- you'll be surprised how many bands I would accept a sandwich off. Yeah, yeah but fuck them. We're not interested in them. <laughs> <laughs> we happens. want to know which band you would accept a sandwich off the least. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so Edmunds is finally allowed to stand with some ladies as he asks a question that no one has ever thought of. How do you pronounce the name of the next act? A girl with a brown jumper tied round her neck and a clear balding haircut thinks it's Bakara, while an early adopter of the Trisha Yates look thinks it's Bakara. Noel does a shit Osmond's joke because he's a minged mouth bellend and introduces <laughs> Yes Sir I Can Booge by Bakara. Wait a minute, For- wait a minute, wait a minute. The, it's worth going into detail about Edmund's introduction here. They do this thing of, how do you pronounce it? Oh, I say Bakara. What about you? Oh, Bakara. And then Noel looks at the camera and goes, I thought it was the Osmonds myself. (sighs) This guy's good. (laughs) Formed in Madrid in 1976 as Venus by mates Mateos and Maria Mendiola, two former members of the ballet company of TVE, the state-owned Spanish TV channel. Bakara started as variety show dancers, but when they were let go by a nightclub in Zaragoza for being too elegant, they decamped to the Canary Islands to do flamenco dancing and singing for German tourists. It was there that they were discovered by the manager of RCA Germany, who brought them to Hamburg and introduced them to the Dutch producer Rolf Soha, who renamed them Bakara. This is their debut single. It's already been number one in Germany, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden and Switzerland and it's up this week from number 24 to number 14. Well chaps, we've had France, the Netherlands, Germany and now Spain. This episode of Top of the Pops is well remain, isn't it? (laughs) Why? Why the foreignness? Well in this case, it's because Franco's gone. Mm. Um, This is very much, although um, they went off with a Dutch producer to make this record. It is quite sort of very reminiscent of that early post-Franco period Mm. uh, when Spanish people were greedily grabbing all the cultural freedoms that they'd been denied for Mm. so long, but without quite having had time to grasp the context of a lot of those moves. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking particularly of lost punk rockers. Yes, uh, I knew you would. I knew you would. If, okay, let's let's take a complete detour. Explain, Taylor. Yeah, if anyone listening to this has not heard it, lost punk rockers uh, were as some Spanish musicians who made an album. A prog which band. Is, they were a, a supposedly a prog band who yes. were corralled to make a note for note remake of Nevermind the Bollocks. Yes. Or as close as they could get, with yes. a singer who sounds like the great Cornholio. Yes, he does. Um, and crucially, they had to make this album with no lyric sheet. So he just wow. sings phonetically. They, 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 they couldn't be bothered to get the rights from Virgin to release it in Spain. No, it was still a bit Wild West. Um, yeah. So 
he just kind of sings phonetically what he's hearing on the records and he can obviously speak a little bit of English because yes. English words are creeping in which are not on the original record that he's misheard yes. um, uh, the highlight being their version of Bodies yes, um, yes, yes Stop what you're doing, Pop Crazy Youngsters. If you've not heard it, go to YouTube's Lost Punk Rockers Bodies. Come back to us. Hmm. We she can wait. was a lot of crap. Yes, yes. Wally. Immaculate like a terrine. <laughs> I'm going to like them all. Yes, yes, Wally. I'm going to like them all. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Fuck this. Fuck that. Fucking all the fuckers. Fucking, Fucking rats. rats. <laughs> I don't want a baby who look like that. <laughs> she want a baby. A, a lot, lot of, of crap. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking amazing. It In is. its own way, it rivals the original. Yes, yes, it does. But let's attend to the needs of this because once again, the BBC orchestra are involved. But they're in they're in the comfort zone here, aren't they? This is this is proper to Ronnie's funk. Yeah. They still sound pissed out of their face, though. Yeah, oh, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the wooziness the, of the of the track lends itself to their well, maybe, but they ruin the they ruin the best bit of the record for me. The the the, right. the sort of "Don't Leave Me This Way" style intro is is mm. one of the one of the few bits of this record that I like, um, and and they mangle that to fuck. Um, I, 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 this record splits my house right down the middle because my right. wife loves this record. Um, I've never liked this record. I'm, a, I'm sorry to say. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I do like it when it becomes clear that something is being sung phonetically. So, so I like that. The, there's some lines that I like. Already told you in the first verse and in the chorus. I like mm. that. Um, but. There are things I should like. It's a bleak, kind of barely audible record that is a disco record, but it has no strength to it. It's kind of weak. It's yeah. it sang through like a nightclubby Mogadon haze, or almost through the yes. glass to the producers in a way. Mm. Um, but it's joyless and kind of grim and lifeless in its arrangement. All of those things could be good things, but I, I find it an effort to hear it. I find the tone of it a little subservient, which, I, which I've never liked. And I've never liked really the sense of whether the piss is being taken or not. Um, yeah. You know, um, but for me, it has that mix. I mean, it, you talk about Europe um, being so well represented in the charts. It, it, that's perhaps its flaw. In the, in the, it's got the kind of mix between um, Middle Europe, kind of German-Austrian classical melody, but modern disco production. It, it, it's the same thing that made Gumbay Dance Band so repellent to me. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this, this is a great chart, if you dig into the chart, for dance music. Commodores, mm. Jackson 5, Candy Staten, Rose Royce, Donna Summer, they've all got great records in the charts. But um, this, to me, is... Yeah, it's a record I just simply cannot get along with, I'm afraid. Mm. I find it an effort to listen to it, and its it soaring chorus just leaves me sort of wilted, slightly exhausted, and a bit pissed off. Yeah, and and of course the the BBC Orchestra decide for some reason to do a lot of electric piano noodling, don't they? Yeah, and it's, yeah. there's no need for it. See, I think this record is sort of likable and different enough from British or American or Italian disco records that mm. you can sort of give it a pass, but it is rickety and slapdash like a musical equivalent of a Jess Franco film uh, except that they don't have to take all their clothes off and get electrocuted yes. but there's, there's one 
genuinely beautiful moment in the record where she says, no, sir, I don't feel very much like talking with this beautiful sighing mm. delivery mm. Um, and a, like a genuine world weariness. But she mangles it on this because yeah. it's a live vocal. Uh, unfortunately, the next line after no, sir, I don't feel very much like talking is no, neither walking, yeah. which <laughs> the effect is a bit blasted into smithereens. You would expect better English from a Dutchman. Um, And uh, lyrically, as Neil says, the least expected bit of postmodernism ever to grace the top 40. Yes. Of uh, already told you in the first verse and in the chorus. They don't deliver that line slyly, which is refreshing. Yeah. um, But it is sort of a bit more jarring than Mm. charming. It's like North European smart arsedness creeping in and sort of hurdling the, the... the Catholic sincerity of the rest of this song. I'm always, um, I'm always a bit dubious about that kind of meta-ness in songwriting. That's kind of why yeah. I slightly dislike True by Spandau Ballet because mm. you know about the next line and, and and things like that. I'm always a bit dubious mm. about that. Yeah, but there is a sort of slickness to the actual record, which is not really reproduced here. Mm. Uh, Top of the Pops Orchestra again. I've become a bit obsessed with the drummer from the top of the Pops Orchestra, who I can only picture as a giant dog with his ears swinging around as as he just lollops away, like wails away on the drums, oblivious, like with his tongue sticking out the side of his mouth. Like Noel Edmonds in Brown Sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, yeah, he's either the sloppiest and least subtle drummer I've ever heard or just the drunkest. Um, mm. And it's like he's already ruined Denise Williams's day. And now he's picking yeah. on these poor Spanish innocents with his arms flying around vaguely. That's only disco. <laughs> Got a bottle of Johnny Walker in the bass drum to you know to help yeah. him forget the days when he thought he was going to be the next Buddy Rich. Like the rest yeah. of the rest of the musicians are looking at him out the corner of the eye. <laughs> is he is yeah. he okay? Uh, <laughs> at least he didn't reach for the maracas. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, one thing about this song that that that, that stands out a little bit from the rest of them, uh, presentation-wise, is we get a good scan of the audience, don't we? And there's a there's a belting Deirdre lookalike holding a rose, <laughs> looking very forlorn. I wonder where she got that from. I bet I bet the Stranglers gave it to her. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I think, and she she at the beginning of the song, she's turned round. She's completely not. The yeah. rest of the audience are looking at them, and she's completely turned around, looking really forlorn. Yeah. I liked her a lot. Yeah, she she she's connecting with this song, I think, or it's reminded her of a holiday in Spain, and uh, <laughs> the, the waiter that never wrote back to her. I read somewhere that um, this was the first female duo number one. Apparently so, yeah. I think for some time it was the best-selling record by a female mm. group or yeah. female duo or something for about fifteen yeah. years. A template that wouldn't be picked up again until yeah, Tattoo and the Cheeky Girls. Yeah, more Euro- more European yes. promise. <laughs> See, I I think in a way this is not what most people wanted from their Europe in nineteen seventy-seven. Mm-hmm. Right? If you were like a, a horrible vest-wearing bloke stranded on this fucking prudish turnip chewing <laughs> in the 70s and you looked across the water and you saw sunshine um free pouring barman uh continental versions of films um and women who were as up for it as the guests yes. whereas whereas uh, they're kind of weird like all the all the 
Baccarat records quite explicitly say hands yeah. up, yes. yeah, yeah. at least for yes. now. You know, that was like their lyrical theme. And for a British bloke, it's just like being back in, in the Starlight Rooms, Hereford. You know what I mean? Being told to, to you know, go and put a ring on it first. And it's like, yeah. Or, or like Simon, you're left with a bulge in your pleated trousers. <laughs> yeah. And they seem to have been picked from this untouched pool of millions of talented Spanish women uh, freshly liberated from Franco, Mm. neither for their voices nor for their looks, which is really odd. Um, It's like you've got that that, that lady in white, looks like a bottle of milk, and she can't (laughs) sing a fucking note. What's she even there for? Mm, It's like, you know, without wanting to be rude, she's not the best looking woman in Spain and she can't sing. What's she doing? Mm. And yeah. she doesn't really know how to style it out either. It's all a bit, it's all a bit strange. Yeah. The follow-up to this makes this better than it is because "Sorry, I'm a Lady" is a terrible record, um, which I think yeah. was, was the follow-up to this. And yeah. Yeah, when they represented Luxembourg um, in Eurovision '78 with with a song called "Parlez Vous Français," that was pretty awful as well. So this is the yeah. high point for them. Still, yes. pretty much a low light as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And you know the idea of a television station having a ballet company—that's that's pretty decent, isn't it? I can't imagine the ATV ballet company. Or it only took a, a fascist government to yeah. bring such culture to the masses. Yeah. So the following week, yes, sir, I can booger soared up to number three, stayed there for a week, and then got to number one for one week being usurped by what's the name of the game by ABBA or oh, more Europeanness. yes sir I can booga ended up selling 18 million copies worldwide although it only got to number two in Spain behind rock election by the French singer Laurent Voulzy oh you Spaniards wow. the follow-up sorry I'm a lady Got to number eight in February 1978, but they were done as a chart act in the UK. After they represented Luxembourg in that year's Eurovision Song Contest, finishing seventh, they eased back into cabaret, becoming regular guests on Sasha Dissell's BBC show, but they split up in 1981 and now have their own separate versions of Baccarat. Mm. It's uh, Mate's Baccarat, Maria's Baccarat, and of course, David Van Day's Baccarat. <laughs> Wait a minute, we're trying to sort out the next one, which is called... Tupelo, Mississippi. Flash, it's a tale told by Steve Gibbons. I want to tell you the story it's all about. A job I had one time as a talent scout. I'd had a hard day in office, the boss wasn't in town. And as I did, as hard-looking guitar pickers just happened to come around. Yeah, he walks in the office, got a great big grin. And folks, that's where the story really begins. He said, my name is Bodegard Ridley. Edmunds, surrounded by more young ladies, gets a cipher going as he introduces Tupelo, Mississippi Flash by the Steve Gibbons Band. Born in Birmingham in 1941, Steve Gibbons was a plumber's apprentice who became lead singer of the Dominettes in 1960, who became the Uglies in 1963 and had moderate chart success in Australia. 
1969, he teamed up with Denny Lane of the Moody Blues and Trevor Burton of the Move to front the group Balls and then joined the Idol Race at the arse end of their career. When the Idol Race split up, he formed the Steve Gibbons Band, who was spotted by Pete Meaden, the original manager of The Who. After releasing their first LP and supporting The Who on their 1976 world tour, the Steve Gibbons Band made the charts on their sixth attempt when Tulane, a cover of the Chuck Berry song, got to number 12 the previous month and is still in the charts this week at number 43. This is the follow-up, a cover of the 1967 Jerry Reed song about Elvis and it's not in the charts yet and oh dear... The tang of Lick and Pickeridge is hanging thick in the air on this one. <laughs> yeah, along with the tang of a few other things as well. Mm. Yeah, this guy looks like he lives on Benzedrine scotch and bacon sandwiches. <laughs> he's like, for a start, I can't believe he's only 36. I had to look this up. Yes. Mm. He looks yes. fucking older than I do. Um, yeah. But genuinely hard looking. Right. Mm. He looks the dead spit of Peter Blake, who did the 50s themed Pepsi adverts of the time. And, you know, was <laughs> is currently just outside the top 40 with lip smacking, rock and rolling. <laughs> and, and later became Vincent Clare in Dear John. Oh. oh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, chaps, there's, there's so many 50s revival songs about at the moment. Uh, I mean, the. The theme tune to Happy Days by Pratt and McLean is at number 38. But why, oh, why are they all so piss poor? This is fucking awful, this song, man. I mean, it, it, yes, it, it angered me so much. It was so bad. Yes. Um, what it reminded me of is that my mum, she, she, because she didn't come from a Western musical culture, in a sense, she'd come over in 67. I remember mm. her attitude about pop music. She loved pop music, don't get me wrong. But her criteria yeah. were really interesting because... For her, it was simply a matter of, I like fast music. (laughs) You know, genres didn't matter. She liked fast music. She didn't like slow songs. And as a kid, I was kind of similar. I liked fast songs. I liked Status Quo, for instance, because their songs were fast. I should like this um, because Mm. I guess it's fast. But, oh man, it's utter refusal to have a memorable moment, a hook, a line, Mm. a lyric, a melody. It just angers me. It angers me massively. Fucking yim-yams. This is what they do. And, and, and the only good moment of the whole, whole thing is when... Explain f- yim-yams to our foreign listeners. Oh, sorry. Um, yim-yams is what um, some of us call people from Birmingham and the black country. Because they speak like that and they say yim-yam a lot. Um, and um, this is As what... As opposed to the smooth... Classy the accent of, of Coventry. <laughs> hey, Coventry is is a subtle accent that mixes in um, yim yamishness with a bit of West Country softness. I think, yeah, and we don't have the upward inflection. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, but this is the this is the music though. That... Why hasn't there been a Birmingham tribute band called Wim Wham? <laughs> <laughs> there should be. I mean, look, there's there's a reason why line dancing is so popular in Birmingham. You know, the, the, Birmingham is. In a sense, the West Midlands are like the Texas of the UK. Um, right. So, so this kind of big pork chop sideburns shit, um, it's going to be, I guess, quite popular and coming out of people from Birmingham. But this is just awful. It, it's got, it's got nothing memorable about it. And the only good moment of this whole performance is when a floor manager runs on 
to budge a girl out of the way. Um, yeah. And then later he does it as well. He's like creating some sort of atrium hallway vibe at the, at the front of the stage. <laughs> versions, that, versions that I've heard of this anyway, they don't have all this extraneous bullshit that this one has. So yeah, um, this uh, in every single episode we look at, a record angers me. This is the one that's done it in this episode. Yeah, I think I think the problem I have with it, it goes on about this bloke and he's amazing with his guitar. And when the guitar solo comes along, it's fucking shit <laughs> it's so fucking high de high there is a bit of that i mean look we're talking here about a band where people decided to leave the idol race and decided to leave the move because they were going too poppy and this is what mm. they wanted to do so fuck them the move yeah. were great you know? yeah you know what i was saying the other week about uh birmingham acts not singing in their natural accent <laughs> yeah well here we are fucking hell what a waste of a recording <laughs> session Yes, what it is, it's American music of the straightest and least imaginative kind, Mm, and they've taken out all the stuff which makes that music listenable, which is the authentic grit and dirt and grease. Um, And this lot look authentically gritty and dirty and greasy, but they don't sound it. Um, Mm. And it's hard to imagine more of a bore. Even from the backs of their heads, you can see that the kids think this is dog shit. Um, <laughs> nobody's moving to it. No, there's a lad no, staring no ahead. No thumbs are going into bolt loops, yeah. are there? Yeah. Oh, God. There's a lad staring ahead of him blankly, like just chewing gum, like he's working mm. on the waltzes. <laughs> not looking <laughs> at the band. Could not give a toss mm. about mm. Steve, so-called Gibbons, and his feeble pastiche. And you watch him, and he thinks he's a bit charismatic as a performer, but... Yeah, really, what he looks like, he looks like a B.A. Robertson that's seen a bit of trouble. That's it. <laughs> that's all it is. It, this this would have been much better if it was Steve's Gibbon band and they'd all be dressed <laughs> yes. up. That would have been fucking brilliant. <laughs> we had a teacher at my school called Mr. Gibbons um, mm. who, as luck would have it, was kind of ape-like mm. and yes. unpleasant to look at. Um, <laughs> and he never taught me. He used to teach computer studies, and yeah. I never did that subject. And yeah. he had a little... They, in his, the classroom, there was a little office bit out the back, and he used to bring his dog into school and tie his dog up in the little office room at the back of the classroom. Um, and everyone in his class used to speculate about this. And I was once, and I can vouch for the the existence of this because I saw it. Somebody wrote uh, in the mock exams of their computer studies uh, at class, did a an essay about whatever it was, something to do with computers. And it went, da, 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 computers, computers, computers. And halfway through, new paragraph, my computer studies teacher shags dogs in his office. <laughs> New paragraph back about computers. And they'd got this paper back marked. And all that there was was that sentence had a red ring around it with a line coming off it leading to a question mark. <laughs> that, was, that was the only response. The best bit of marked work I ever saw sort of um, uh, in relation to what Taylor was just saying was, I remember we had to draw a picture once of, um, you know, um, J- the story of Joseph in the Bible. Um, and, it, and he gets thrown in a pit by his brothers and then picked up. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember my mate did a picture. It's pretty good. And uh, you know where this is going, probably, because mm-hmm. jo- because Joseph was meant to be naked in this pit. Um, yes. My mate had clearly just given him a, a massive bell end. 
and, <laughs> and we were waiting to see how this would be marked and um, <laughs> it, it, it came back and the RE teacher would just you know politely erase the penis with her own oh. Oh, boring <laughs> you had a strange echo of her own life yeah <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, do you think Danny Mirror's standing there going, yeah, you fucking amateurs. <laughs> I know how to pay respect to the king. I'll tell you what, though. I would pay to see uh, a bare-knuckle fight between Steve Gibbons, uh, Danny Mirror, and the Stranglers. <laughs> fucking hell. I'll tell oh. you what. There'd, yeah, there'd be some uh, some tattered cheekbones at the end of that. Yeah, well... I- Danny Mirror will just whirl around and fucking take people's eye out with his tassels. I think pretty quickly the Stranglers will be out of it because, you know... Yeah, yeah, they're all talk. They're all, all talk. talk. Um, the, the, yeah. Between Owens and, and um, Gibbons, that would be interesting. Um, yeah, but Jean-Jacques Bernal, he's, you know, he's a bit of a karate expert, isn't he? Or was that a load of bullshit? Mm. No, I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. Whereas Hugh Cornwell, um, I mean, he wasn't quite a public schoolboy, but he did go to quite a nice uh, North London, uh, I think, grammar school. It's uh, mm. the one that Michael Palin sent his kids yeah, to. Yeah, but I, th- I think oh. Gibbons, after a few pints of Brew 11, um, would just, yeah, just kick him in the nuts with his winkle pickers. I, th- I think they'd be out of it. <laughs> yeah. um, and it would be between Owens and Gibbons. That is an interesting face-off. I'd be intrigued to see who'd win that. So the following week, and every week after that, up to this day, Tupelo, Mississippi Flash failed to make the charts. The only other bit of chart action the band got was when Johnny Vortex got to number 56 in May of 1978. But the Steve Gibbons band still exists today. Bloody hell. And what's really angering about that song, it's not even in the fucking charts. What's it doing on top of the pops? Well, exactly, yeah. Isn't it always disappointing when people called Gibbon actually don't turn out to be real monkeys? Yeah, it's (laughs) false advertising. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, Channel 4 News, Gary Gibbon. And he's like, (laughs) oh, you're just a bloke, aren't you? (laughs) I I just hoped he'd be some kind of monkey with a with a with a kind of like a trilby with the with a ticket with the word press on it, and he like like a trilby that's that's much too small for his (laughs) great hate, yeah. Yeah. And and you know, he's there at a prime minister's uh, conference or something, and he just you know he spots some banana sandwiches on a table. Or he just, but he's it's there, not. He's there at like the the EU and just suddenly goes crazy and starts ripping people's faces off and stuff. Yeah. Before having to be destroyed by a Channel Four marksman. <laughs> <laughs> Gibbons band, it's more like an identity parade here. Cheer up, smile, smile. <laughs> All right, don't overdo it. Here's number one, and it's David Searle. Tired of drifting and searching, shifting from town to town. Edmunds, 
flanked by even more sulky-looking maidens, pretends to get savled as he introduces the brand new number one, Silver Lady by David Soul. Born in Chicago in 1943, David Solberg was the son of a Methodist preacher who turned down the chance of a baseball career and studied political science in Mexico City, where he started to learn guitar. In 1966, he appeared on the NBC chat show, The Merv Griffin Show, as The Covered Man, a singer in a mask who eventually revealed that he was David Soul and he wanted to be known for his music. But before that, he became an actor, having guest parts in Flipper, Star Trek and a film part in Magnum Force. He got his big break in 1975 when he took the role of Ken Hutchinson in the TV film Starsky and Hutch, which was turned into a TV show which made its UK debut in April of 1976 and immediately became a smash hit. However, the singing bug wouldn't go away and he released Don't Give Up On Us, which got to number one for four weeks in January of this year. This is a follow-up to Going In With My Eyes Open, which got to number two for three weeks in April of this year, held off the top spot by Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA. It's been patiently waiting three weeks in the top three, and it's finally taken down the king and way down to get to number one. And we're treated to the video. Mm-hmm. Mm. Chaps, Starsky Nutch, you were five. What, yeah. what impact did that, I, that have I, on your I, little I, lives? I was only five, but I loved Starsky and Hutch. I I'm not sure I yeah, really followed too. the stories as such, but I just loved no. the car, Huggy, yes. Dobie, yes. Starsky, and yeah. then Hutch in that order, yeah. in that, in that yeah. precise order. And they were a massive influence, I think, on everyone. I'm, I'm, not, being, I'm not being ridiculous. I think the fact that their best friend and their boss yeah. were black was massive. I yes. remember that just being yeah. a real revelation. And I remember my dad driving me um, somewhere and saying, look, Neil, look at this. I'm starting to drive with his knees. Like, you know, yeah. using his <laughs> knees to, drive, to, to move the steering wheel. And that was something Starsky and Hutch did. They were massively influential. Um, yes. So when it came to him doing songs, it kind of freaked me out a bit at the age of five. But already by then, he was changing. Yeah. After the vitality and excitement of the first series of Starsky and Hutch, he got a bit more doleful, I guess. He got a, ta- he got a tash. And um, I yeah. love the video to this. I, I like the way yes. he looks so forlorn at the beginning. I like the bit yeah. when he's walking down the street and that massive black dude can't help but shake his hand. And yes. th- there's a forlorn loneliness and warmth in his heart and in his face, David Soul. That really reminds yeah. me. But it I- reminds me the fight. You know the, the the closing moments of every single episode of The Incredible Hulk with David Banner. Yeah. It's almost yeah. it's almost like yes. too poignant for kids in a way. Yes. Um, and yeah. and you know yeah. I-, I think this is a great song um, written by. Yeah. You know, Jeff Stevens and Tony McCauley were kind of old 60s songwriters. So there's that bubblegum, almost Jimmy Webb feel to some of the lines. The yes. lines about the Indiana wind chilling him to the bone. Um, the arrangement, yeah. what it really reminded me of is um, the uh, Grease by Frankie Valli. But, it, but crucially, mm. it's less controlled. It's messier. There's weird broken moments in the turnarounds where, it, where it's all a bit strange. I'm, I'm not saying it's necessarily a really great masterpiece, but... Um, no. it, it, I think it's my favourite David Soul um, and mm. it just makes me think why didn't the Sweeney make records and in fact why didn't Jim Yo, God, <laughs> and why yes. didn't Jim Rockford make a pop record I think that would have been amazing too yeah but, um, yeah Starsky yeah. and Hutch I loved them had the annual had the matchbox car my dad used to drive around yeah. with his knees 
Um, yeah. Round about this time, uh, the bloke next door to me, Nano, he had a red Ford Capri and he put a oh, Starsky wow. and Hutch stripe on it. Whoa. And it looked the fucking bollocks. I think a few people with Capris. I was just like, why can't you do that, Dad? <laughs> but I, I have to say that I was quite angry and upset that David Soul was putting out this kind mm. of music because I thought it would be lots of funk songs about <laughs> jumping onto cars and, and having a best mate to have fights against other people with and, mm. you know, good shit mm. like that. Yeah, well, the, the thing about Starsky and Arch, though, it's I watched a few recently and it's an entertaining mm. show, but the problem with it is that it's an action comedy and therefore yeah. inferior to an action series that's funny because it has no sense of its own ridiculousness, mm. which Starsky mm. and Hutch sort of does, especially the later ones, uh, which, as ever with American series, as it goes on, they get less serious and a bit more desperate. And every yeah. week they're like dressing up as Charlie Chaplin and going into space and <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but it is, but it's a nice addition to that grand tradition of cop shows featuring people too short to be in the police force. Uh, <laughs> which, Paul Michael Glazer quite clearly is. But I do like this. Uh, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's not really a like an all-time classic, but it's a very competent, radio-friendly, soft pop number mm. one. And he yeah. doesn't murder it. Crucially, he doesn't murder it. He mm. doesn't have that much of a voice, but he works within his limitations. And he doesn't try to over-emote. And he doesn't forget that he's a, a Norwegian-American singing a light soul ballad mm. and yeah. not in not in any sense other than a nominative sense a soul man um yeah. and also it's i remember it from when i was a kid and i think part of the reason why it's stuck in my head is it's got one of those shameless choruses it's like a yeah. one of those fuck it choruses where the entire arrangement follows the vocal melody mm. so there's all those strings doubling the hook line mm that he's singing so it just sort of barges straight into your head whether you like it or not I think it's a good a good record it's like if um, it's like if Glenn Campbell got kicked in the ball <laughs> this is the sort of record he would make but it's just a shame that he was sort of a bit of an empty space yeah. as a cultural figure because yeah. you know I mean? he was a good looking fella mm. and apparently he's a really nice bloke but when you look at it it's it's appropriate that his character's first name in Starsky and Hutch is Ken. Yes. There's a sort of a like an overwhelming Midwestern blandness to him that does nobody any good. We're treated to the video, which is which is absolute bonus when, when you're a kid at that time because you get to see more of America. Yeah, yeah completely. Um yeah, we see David Soul looking all moody in the city, and then he's then he's tooling about on a motorbike, and then he's dossing about in the woods with his knockoff, and then and then the best bit is when he's walking around in some dingy small town, which is you know supposed to depict the grimness of his situation, but you know when you compare it to 1977 Britain, it looks <laughs> yeah. fucking mint, doesn't it? Yeah, you're just looking at the signs, you go, oh fucking hell. Pizza, what the fuck's that? <laughs> I did not know yeah. what a pizza was as a nine-year-old in 1977. The, well, everything surrounding him was exciting, but the trouble was he was massively unpushy and he was he was kind of a really mm. gentle personality. But, you know, I'm sure all of us have big sort of bits of David's soul, in a sense, engraved in our heads. The title sequence to Starsky and Hutch. Yes. You know, it, the, the yeah. crucial thing about that show is it grabbed you from the off of the title sequence and it was a title sequence that was reenactable. 
jumping up, going yes, up and down yes, stairs yes. with you know pretend guns. You know, um, obviously blowing on your mate's cheek <laughs> while he's looking at some girly fancies across <laughs> exactly. the Exactly, and you, you'd obviously get in trouble if you jumped on your car in the way they did. But it always used to make me laugh. Look, you know, he'd, hurt, he'd yeah. hurt his bottom by jumping on the car, and it cut to yeah. his, his wide open mouth. Um, he was, you know, massively influential. Yeah, there's that one where he's screaming as he's throwing something that you think's a knife or something. That got reenacted yeah, a lot yeah. in playgrounds. Massively reenacted. Yeah, people stop. Basically, in our playgrounds, people stop playing war and they started playing Starsky mm. and Hutch mm. instead. Yeah, completely. Which was good. The next show, I think, to occupy that centrality to kids that was an American import, I would say, would probably be Dukes of Hazard, And that's, that's a long way down a line. Yes. For a long time, yes. Starsky and Hutch absolutely ruled. Yes, it did. And, of course, David Soule was the de facto heartthrob of 1977, wasn't he? He'd, uh, he'd, he'd, he'd put Rod Stewart in his place, I, I like to think. And, you know, Patrick Mower. <laughs> I think he yeah. had, but I, I think his appeal, whilst um, those who fancied him, some of them responded positively mm. to the heartthrob thing, I think he also managed to put yes. some people off in a certain extent. Because they wanted, um, you know, Hutch. They wanted a certain toughness to the music, like you said. Um, and they didn't get yeah. it. It was pretty sappy stuff. Um, uh, I think this mm. is the best of his singles, though. Think about him being a heartthrob. When you watch this video, there's that amazing shot near the beginning of him sort of loping weirdly across a lawn. Yeah. He looks like he broke his hip about a year ago. He's yeah. got this really strange walk in a casual dark blue short sleeve top and like yeah. old guy jeans with mm. that yeah. thick flat midriff and yeah. wide hips and square jaw. He looks like an ex-president like filmed yes. on his ranch in Virginia. Yes. It's a real old guy look. Mm. It's really distinctive. That wide, square hip and crotch area, sort of like Marty Funkhauser, and <laughs> yeah. the, the heavy, slightly palsied walk. He's what what he is is like one of the last of the old school butch physique yeah. type fellows yeah. mm. from the days before creatine and abdominal crunches where he's just big yeah. he's just yeah it's not much muscle definition he's just a, a hefty bloke with thick arms holding his stomach in you know what i mean yeah like like richard burton or or uh, adam west as batman yes uh, or sean connery in diamonds are forever you know he's like mm. 40 something his eyebrows are getting bushy he's just a slab sweating brandy like <laughs> making low growling noises when he sees a young woman looking sort of like a healthy muscular man who's been like you know wrapped in sausage meat <laughs> <laughs> and deep fried you don't you don't get hunks like that anymore no, and of course that that's the scene where he's walking along, and uh, and the yeah the the black guy stops and basically goes fucking yeah, hell it's yeah Hodge. I love that bit and shakes his hand and you can see it on his face it's like oh mate please don't do that <laughs> I, I I just want this fucking takeover with I'm sick of it but he shakes his hand and everything and they've gone oh yeah let's keep it's it it a lovely moment there's a few lovely moments and and, 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 and I it like is. the way that as Taylor says he looks kind of confused at the beginning of the video but then looks happy yeah. and I thought at the time yeah. I think that, that the song was about his motorbike um, but yeah. um, he looks he looks genuinely happy when he gets on his motorbike um, in terms of his hunkiness I agree with Taylor completely he's kind of reminiscent in a way of somebody else that we've discussed before BJ Thomas he's got that that bigness mm. That, um, yeah. that, that, that sort of big boned, that big boneness. Yeah. Um, he was just born that yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. So, Silver Lady spent three weeks at number one before being usurped by Yes Sir, I Can Boogie. The follow-up, 
let's have a quiet night in. Got to number 8 in January of 1978 and he'd have one more chart hit that year. He moved to London in the mid-90s and played the title role in Jerry Springer, The Opera. And I used to see him all the time in, in a pub called The Lyric in Soho, which is across the road from my office when I was working for Uncle Paul Raymond. Did you ever go and have a... Didn't want to... Did didn't really speak right. to him. He was just there holding court, and I just thought, ah, leave. You know, when you when you work in Surrey, you see famous people all the time. Yeah. So it was like, he was like, oh, look, there's David Salt. But I only spoke to him once when I got a phone call out of the blue from Huggy Bear. Anthony, what's his name? Antonio Fargus. Yeah, he was working on a play with my one of my mates, and uh, all of a sudden I got a phone call for, at work, and. Uh, he says, is this Al? And I said, yeah, hey, this is Antonio. I hear you've got really good taste in uh, in funk and soul music. And I said, yeah, <laughs> are, are you who I think I know you are? And he went, yeah, 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 it's Antonio. I said, oh, fucking hell. So we had a good old chat about Isaac Hayes and uh, and Curtis Mayfield. And I said, oh, I see your mate David in the pub across the road all the time. And he says, oh, well, uh, uh, tell him I'm at this theatre and uh, we'll go for a drink. So, yeah, I essentially wow. went up to, to Hutch and said, oh yeah, Augie Bear says hello, and uh, do you fancy a pint? The strangest conversation I've ever had in my life, yeah. See, when someone tells me that they were working in pornography, and they got a call from Huggy Bear, that is not yeah. the tone of the phone call, in the, in the 90s, that's yeah. not the tone of the phone call that I would expect it. Yeah, it sounds no. like a much, much more pleasant experience. Number one, David Soul and Silver Lady. Now, Kim, tell me about the brand new single you... Uh, oh, sorry, we don't have time. Uh, we'll find out about that later. Swap Shop returns on Saturday. I'm on The Breakfast Show tomorrow, and she's livid. Well, it was only a joke. Bye-bye. Next to someone called Kim, who looks like she works in the studio, does a bit of a gotcha on her, and then reminds us that he's got the best slot on Radio 1 and two whole hours on BBC One on Saturday mornings, and is the alpha male Don Gorgon of the BBC. And we sign off with Thunder in My Heart by The Old Sailor. Born in Sussex in 1949, the old sailor was a porter in a hotel in Hove when he was discovered by Adam Faith and the songwriter David Courtney and began his music career when he co-wrote Giving It All Away, which was a top five hit for Roger Daltrey in May of 1973. His debut single, Why Is Everybody Going Home, failed to chart, but the next... The show must go on, made it to number two in January of 1974, and he went on a tier of seven top ten hits in a row, including When I Need You, which got to number one for three weeks in February of this year. This is the follow-up to How Much Love, which got to number 10 in May of this year, and it's up this week from number 25 to number 22. Before we discuss The Old Sailor, what the fuck was that thing about with Nolan, that woman? She didn't look very comfortable, did she? No. Like that really bombed, mm. didn't it? Yeah, like, all his links that was just uh, 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 you just left sort of shrugging and 
looking around, what the fuck? Yeah, was that and and, and he had to say that was just a joke <clears throat> near the end. It's mm. like telling a joke that you then have to explain parenthetically at the end. Um, it's just. Yes. What the fuck is he playing? And and I still think, no I, bent. you know, he says it's a joke. I reckon she might have been in some band, and yeah. she was fucking living. Yeah, it's a mystery. If anybody knows, uh, we'll put up an image on uh, mm. on Facebook and Twitter. If anyone knows who this lady is, poor Kim, uh, we'd like to know. Other than the most British-looking woman I've ever seen. <laughs> so the old sailor currently having it large in America. He's had he's had two number ones this year, don't you know? With when I feel love and you make me feel like dancing. So yeah, he's he's uh, he's he's on the rise. His ship has come in, and yet he makes all the mistakes that David Soul didn't on this record, right? Like mm. trying to sound like he's from you know Muscle Shoals mm. rather than. Shoreham by sea um, <laughs> yes. and just coming off like he's got something trapped I mean this song would be reasonably acceptable if they'd given it to someone with a bit of presence right mm. yeah as opposed to this desperate shrimp <laughs> like mm. it's like he's busting his guts to sound gritty and raw mm. but you just picture him as the Piero clown <laughs> mugging yes. and, and miming clutching his thunderous heart on yes, daring. yes, he's kind of painted himself into that corner, hasn't he? Yeah, sort of too bright videotape. Do we know if he was friends with Wayne Sleep <laughs> and, <laughs> and Christopher Lillycrap? Oh, man. Because yes. they should have hung out together. They, Although, if they stood too close to each other and their hair got tangled up, they would look like a human Cerberus. <laughs> I'd love to hear what this song would be like, like Taylor says. I mean, not to be racist about it, but sung by a black American, I would like to hear what this song sounds mm. like. Something I'll probably never get to do. Yes. The old sailor, he's, he's a wannabe Elton, and I hate Elton anyway. Um, mm. You know, um, yes. You said he's Elton Demijohn. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, oddly enough, I have Christopher Liddy crap written down, as well as Tommy Boyd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. The yes. same cheerful curliness, isn't it? Um, yes. Which I've got to say, I find unbearable. Yeah. Tight jeans and a rugby shirt. Mm. My mum had an old Sailor album, which was unusual because she didn't really have many records. She had uh, Morning Has Broken by Cat Stevens, uh, a Roger Whitaker album, and this. Uh, see, this is the difference it makes when your parents got married in 1962. And in some ways, I'm glad that. I didn't grow up like a lot of my friends did with hippie parents. I like mm. the way it forces you to discover yes. things for yourself. But it did mean that the music I heard at home was not always the most nourishing. And like my dad mm. had a couple of trad jazz albums and then like a, about five singles that he'd bought in all the years that pop music had existed. He had good vibrations didn't we have a lovely time the day we went to Banger? <laughs> um, Prelude's version of After the Gold Rush. Star by Kiki D. Um, Only You by The Flying Pickets. And wow. Anthem, One Day in Every Week by The New Seekers. Right. Um, and I particularly like that last one because he'd left it on the seat of a car <laughs> on a hot day and it had warped a bit. So it sounded really weird uh, and looked more interesting going around on the turntable. It fascinates me, the record collection of people who buy so few records at intermittent yeah. points in their life. Yeah. She's like, why did you buy that? Why that? I thought that selection of singles that my dad bought was quite random. But looking at it, 
It's not because um, four of those six are in entirely or largely a cappella. So obviously you like voices. Isn't that weird? Something I never yeah. spoke to him about when he was alive, yeah. pop music. For us, records were bought for us and we didn't really buy that many. I didn't buy any until I became a teenager in a way and started buying records. So our mm. records were really, really odd. And, and, and I think it should be like that. I, I, what I can't stand um, sometimes is parents trying to teach their kids about good music or whatever and giving them yeah, a grounding no, and, and whenever that. you read interviews with musicians you often find oh yeah i grew up in a very musical household we listened to all this kind of diverse music when we were growing up well do you really want your parents approving of, of the music I, no. for me it, it's all about your parents going turn that shit off and, and, and actually yeah if they're not banging on the ceiling yeah, it's and not, not good a musical we had about seven or eight records all of which were music for pleasure records two of which were probably yeah Tijuana Brass plays Lennon and McCartney one of which was Negro Spirituals and you know you built you, you built your own taste in music from that and the most important album for me in 77 was none of what was in the charts it was probably Hello My Darling by Charlie Drake and that had been bought for yes. us, you know, like most of our music. Well, yeah. I certainly wasn't raised in a musical household, and I'm, I'm quite glad about that. So the following week, Thunder in My Heart jumped three places to number 22, its highest position. The follow-up, I Can't Stop Loving You, Though I Try, got to number six in October of 1978. But 29 years later, a remix called Thunder in My Heart Again went straight to number one in February of 2006 and stayed there for two weeks. So what's on TV afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with Happy Ever After, the forerunner of Terry in June, where Terry finds an old Roman coin in the garden and goes mental around dealing with a metal detector. Followed by When the Boat Comes In, the 9 o'clock news, international show jumping and finishes off with Robin Day interviewing Prime Minister Jim Callaghan in Tonight. BBC Two is running for The Love of Albert, a play about a senior citizen who's been rehoused on the 10th floor of a tower block, followed by There's No Place, a short play about a young couple who start living in a disused goods yard, then the 1958 musical Damn Yankees, and finishes off with more international golf. ITV is halfway through an episode of the National Service sitcom Get Some In, followed by The New Avengers, where an ex-shag of Purdy vows to avenge the death of his father by killing the Arab politician she's having to guard. The police sitcom The Fuzz, then an episode of This Week about how Britain is lagging behind Europe in something else <laughs> again. Then News at 10, the documentary Superman and the Bride about gender stereotypes in mass media. Then the documentary series This Sport in Life about the divide between Rugby League and Rugby Union and rounds off with a repeat of The Odd Couple. So, chaps, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I'd possibly be talking about the Stranglers ripping up that paper, um, but just basically asking what the fuck was all that about. Um. Yeah, <laughs> mm. that was the only thing that anyone actually did that broke the routine. Yeah. But oh, yes. the audio-visual extravaganza of the Giorgio Moroder sequence yeah. 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 stuck in a few people's minds and prized them open. I like to think also that I would have, even at the age of five, hated that Steve Gibbons band thing so much. I might have been talking about that. Mm. And what we're we buying on Saturday? Well, now it'd be the emotions and Moroder. But then, probably only Silver Lady. Yeah, same. Oh, and Denise Williams. Although, 
that would involve me hearing that record on the radio and establishing that it didn't actually sound like it was played from the the bottom of a party set. <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about October 1977? Uh, punk had changed the world, apart from <laughs> apart from almost all of it. Well, it, it tells us that um, punk revivalists who go on about 77 being such a year zero, um, well, you know, this episode of Top of the Pops could be from any of the four, uh, sort of three years surrounding it either way in a way it could be from anywhere up until 1980 mm. it could be from anywhere from 75 onwards um like, like i said the the real revolution mm. is coming it's a long way off and it's only giorgio who knows about it Ooh. and that closes the book on another episode of chart music but before we go we need to thank the following people who are mint and skill and have kicked some money into our patreon account that is tom apps Desa Clocklin, Richard Chaplin, James Harris, Dan Turner, Mark Cooper, Chris Mitchell, Matt Chase, Andrew Smart, Andy Chain, Golden E. Pump, John Mullen, Rusty Shackleford, Corm, Paul Thorpe, Chris Alford. Oh, because on the first of the month, all the pop craze youngsters come around and lay their money down. Don't forget, you can catch us at chart-music.co.uk. You can find us on facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. You can get involved with us on Twitter at chartmusictotp. And you can give us some money at patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, Neil Kulkarne. Thanks, Al. It's been fun. Thank you, Taylor Parks. Don't have nightmares. My name is Al Needham, and I'm going to spend the rest of my evening licking my pickerage. <laughs> <laughs> Sharp music.
we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.